my fellow Westorians. Welcome to Valar Reredis for Duncan Egg. It's the Sworn Sword. Part three. Let's see what today brings us. A, my fellow Westorians. Dancing Sean of House Beard is here as usual. And what unusual drink are you imbibing this fine Sunday? I went back to the Rainbow Machine again. Oh. The rainbow this time machine. I haven't mixed. <laughs> it sounds like a, <laughs> a strange device from the future. <laughs> Funny story, by the way. I told uh, Rita there's a couple things we need to get from the grocery store: cat litter, blueberry muffins, a rainbow machine. She's like, "Ha ha, rainbow machine. That's funny." Oh. Like, no, seriously, a rainbow machine. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone likes that joke. <laughs> anyway, we also uh, I also added a uh, blue voltage Mountain Dew and a kiwi strawberry sparkling ice. Wow. Fancy. So, uh, Ashea and I watched the movie Barb and Star. What is it called? Go to Vista Del Mar? Yeah, Barb and Star, go to Vista Del Mar. And the villain drinks a suicide very early in the movie, which, you know. Oh, nice. Of course, if you aren't aware, for those of you out there, it's when you take, you go to a drink machine, the fountain drink, and you get a little bit of everything. Whatever they have, you get you know, <laughs> you fill your drink up. So it's just a maximizing the, the mixture. And uh, yeah, I think of, uh, I think of you, Sean, when I, <laughs> whenever I see something yeah. like that. <laughs> I remember I, when I was young, third grade, maybe, and I went to like an art camp, like a summer school thing. And some of the other, oh, I was like the youngest kid there. And some of the other kids were doing that. I was like, oh, you can do that? Like it blew my <laughs> mind. And like ever since that's definitely the first time i experienced it at, at like swimming school you know swimming lessons not school i didn't go to a swimming school just you know swim lessons in summer camp and uh yeah that's uh, probably six years old yep that's that's when most people discover say, that, growing up in hawaii all the kids called it and this is pretty terrible but it is what we all called it a kamikaze yeah that's similar to a suicide yeah it yeah, is I mean, similar mm -hmm. i just when someone said suicide for the first time I was like what do you mean a you're like oh and then it clicked you're like kamikaze suicide okay yeah. That is kind of a rough naming convention, <laughs> but hey, yeah, yeah, it's from a past era that name comes from. <laughs> I wonder what a homicide would be—just regular <laughs> coke. Or... No, that's when you take one of those and throw it in someone's face. Yeah, it's when you <laughs> or, serve it to someone without them knowing. Yeah, they ask for a water, and you give them that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of drinks, I am doing the occasional thing I do, which is not drinking a coffee today during the stream. I wonder if anyone will be able to tell the difference. Last Whoa. time I do it, I probably Crazy. I only do it every once in a while. Last time I didn't mention it. The time before that, a few people did mention that they could tell. I wasn't sure, uh, but we'll see. Anyway, next week we'll have a slight variation. Sean is not available. We're going to wrap up the Sworn Sword with Jim McGeehan, our, our good friend who is on from time to time. He was on fairly recently for uh, Barristan in the Winds of Winter, and we're going to have some connected topics there, and we'll discuss some of the battle stuff We'll do some nostalgia from our episode that we did with him long ago on the Redgrass Field. So that's very appropriate and fitting. And we'll talk some cool stuff there. We'll expand on his um, idea of the Sworn Sword as a, as a Western. So we'll, tell, we'll cover a lot today and we'll finish it off then. And thank you to our supporters. Like I said, patrons get can ask questions, but also we appreciate your support financially. Without you, we would not be here. And during this time where there isn't a lack of new material, we especially appreciate your support because there's definitely a little less attention on the fandom than there would be, but that is to be expected. 
We do game streams every Friday. We didn't do one this past Friday because it was Ashea's birthday. Yay. Happy name day to Ashea. Hmm. Yeah, we had some good dessert. We did have some very good dessert. Yes, we did. As for those game streams, if you haven't checked them out, they're pretty fun. Right now we're playing House Valarian, basically running through a dynasty, role-playing the characters and, and taking over. Uh, like when you're when the Lord or Lady dies, the heir takes over. You start playing that character. We have a regular group of people that hang out and watch. And the videos are on YouTube. They're not on podcast format because it's highly visual, of course. So those are every Friday at 6 Eastern. Let's get going. Sean, a couple of things. You have some notes here at the beginning. That would be uh, some things that you didn't get to bring up earlier. Maybe let's start with that. Yeah, there's a couple of things that either I passed over or thought of after the fact that I wanted to to squeeze in, especially if I'm not going to be here for the, the last episode on this book. One was, I wonder how things, and I, and you know, this could go a lot of different ways to think about this, but I was specifically thinking about it as Eustace came up with a plan to send Dunk to treat with Rohan. What if Dunk hadn't been there? Yeah. How, how would this have gone differently? Now, maybe you can back up and say, well, if Dunk hadn't been there, they wouldn't have investigated the dam. I don't think that's true, though. I think eventually that would have come to light. Yeah, Um, most likely. Yeah. And uh, so would Eustace have not thought to send someone to speak to Rohan? Would he have, uh, would Bennis have still tried to train troops? Would he have sent Bennis to talk to her? Uh, You can imagine a lot of different ways it would go, but I I suspect two things. One, the people would have suffered. Yep. The, the, the commoners on Venice, on uh, Eustace's lands, maybe they just leave. I guess maybe they, uh, or maybe somehow Rohan just wins the land in some kind of conflict so she takes over and takes care of those people. But at least in the short term, they're probably going to suffer. Yeah. The other is that Venice might have pulled a Stefan and not only left Eustace's side, but joined oh, Rohan's sides, side. Yeah. He didn't <laughs> yeah. want to be on the losing side. In, in this, you know, here in the story, he ran away, but that's because he was the object of... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah you're right, that's a good point. He might have just been like, well, I'm going to be on the winning side. Yeah. I, another thing I started wondering about, too, was was it his plan all along to, to grab what he could and run? Because it seemed like the plan was to go to battle, and at some level, like, maybe he just wanted to go hurt somebody. Maybe he was just telling Eustace what he wanted to hear. But do you think he was conniving enough to, to have had this plan before Dunk went to face him on his own? I think he may know? have seen it develop and encouraged it. But I don't think he is clever enough to have plotted it too far in advance. But I think he's cunning enough to realize the way the wind was blowing and realize, okay, they're not going to take me with. And once he saw that Eustace was riding with him, and he's like, yeah. how could this possibly go well? I think that was, you know, his mixture of of fear and lack of morals uh, made his path somewhat clear, I guess. They really, it's a, it's a good example of if there had been a second Bennis, the second Bennis would have warned everyone that the first Bennis was going to do this. Because <laughs> you, you need someone who thinks like yeah. this. Like earlier we pointed out that Bennis, yeah. the way Bennis thinks is actually useful in, in like their sort of, rough counsel situation where they're talking things out because he's the one guy that isn't naive about how dirty and, and cunning people can be. The other, the rest yeah. of them just kind of, they just kind of stand aloof from that or just don't think that way. So, <laughs> so, that, so they we, needed someone to be like, you need a, you know, <laughs> we've talked about that before the idea that, uh, you tend to project yourself yeah. onto others. Right. So 
an honest person might be more aghast when they find out someone that lied had lied to them. Yeah. Whereas a dishonest person might constantly be suspicious of whether or not people are telling them the truth, yeah. whether they You're are not going to be so surprised much. in that, you know, using your first example, yeah. a, a dishonest person isn't going to be, they might be like, faux surprised, act indignant, you know, yeah. but they aren't going to yeah. be actually like, I can't believe you lied. I mean, I, it's not true. There are some people that are so narcissistic that they also, you know, yeah. are critical. <laughs> but you're right. Most people <laughs> who are There are a lot of variables also, involved, yeah. both from the personality side and the situation side, but it is a tendency yeah. to, to project your, how you would do things onto how or why other people would do yeah. things. It's like that and old saying. A second could have warned them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me let me clarify one thing here that's interesting, given your your question, your what if question, which is that this is a bit of a standoff in part because if Eustace doesn't have an heir of his body, then the terms of the contract or the law is that he that Standfast reverts to the crown, not to cold mode. So she lo- so if she kills Eustace. He, she loses, she might lose the dam also because, or at least lose something else because she's no longer got a, a, a patsy as a neighbor and she's got the, the crown, would own that land and give it to somebody else and probably someone they're friends with, you know, someone who's earned a favor. And in that sense, then you've got a loyalist nearby and someone, you know, it, it, it's, it's not quite so straightforward. In other words, if it was just as simple as, kill Eustace and the problems are gone. She might've just done that. But that's part of why this, that's part of what makes this whole thing so interesting is that Eustace can't just go after her. Well, because of manpower, but also, <laughs> but for other reasons, um, because his, his lore, he, he has nothing to gain. Like even if he did have more manpower, he couldn't legally take cold mode. It would be against the law. Crown would be like, dude, you can't just do that. And they would send an army or they would order him to stop. It would come to, it would come to a head one way or another. He wouldn't be able to just get away with that part of what makes it so interesting. It's like a microcosm of a lot of the things we see in Game of Thrones on the large scale, where there's all these different conflicting interests that make direct action difficult or impossible. Because, you know, if you, if I push button A, then, you know, this, this, it has three different effects, only one of which I actually want. (laughs) And then I have to cover these other two problems. So it's, it's awesome. It's one of the great things about this story is this, this, the way George has levered it or, or layered it so that you can't just, one person can't just run in there with a sword and, and get what they want. Some of those things that you mentioned there and a lot of this whole thing uh, also remind me that I wanted to point out the Learned Hands podcast, oh, yeah. which is, uh, there are two lawyers who pick different topics in the Song of Ice and Fire world and discuss them from a legal perspective, yeah. you know, if, if it had gone to the courts or what laws do we know about this, this world, how would they apply, et cetera. And they cover this episode. You could see there would be a lot uh, oh, yeah. to, uh, <laughs> on this legal analysis of this topic right of water rights. Alley, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The other one that maybe isn't quite as uh, involved, but just uh, an observation when they cross the stream, when they're heading over to treat with <laughs> Rohan, and they emerge on the other side, dripping wet. It's just a really good contrast, you know, oh, from yeah. the dry drought used to sides. And now they're soaking in water when they come out on Rohan's side. It's like the... It's, it's very much like this realm is... Has what doing is. well. Yeah, you know, it's, it's got thriving or yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's got plenty. Yeah. Or at least enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the excess uh, is just flowing around him. <laughs> 
So this next one, uh, it, it was sort of a specific point that I was thinking about, but it opens up some other questions. And I see that Nina's made some notes, but I'll, I think on one way or the other, I'll have some further discussion about this idea popped in my head. Well, yeah, yeah. Let me, well, um, I can introduce it because I have read this part um, of what she wrote here. Okay. So the idea is whether or not it was actually Blood Raven that killed Damon and or his two sons. Now, as we yeah. su- as we suggested, there's 300 Raven's teeth apparently shooting arrows at this at these guys. So one would say, well, how could it possibly have just been Blood Raven? What couldn't it? You know, wouldn't someone else have made a shot? Was he the only competent one out of the group? His arrows go farther. Yeah. And Nina writes that it says a white arrow was you know killed Damon. Now that did did, did Eustace actually see this arrow? Is he just saying that because it's an assumption? Because he knows Blood Raven uses white arrows. That's part of what makes this difficult. Is we don't actually know that he witnessed the white arrow. That might just be a story. And we also don't know that Blood Raven's the only one that uses weirwood arrows. It would be kind of a stretch if all of the Raven's teeth used weirwood arrows, but maybe not. It's not like they actually get into a lot of fights. Most of those arrows would just sit there. So there's your lead in. (laughs) Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, we had talked about this a little bit in the past. I was thinking the idea that if you kill someone in war, it's not quite the same as like assassinating them or killing them to get their throne, killing your older brother. It's a little different if he ordered troops to attack and so on. This is not quite the same as Kinslaying. Now, maybe even if in battle he stabbed them in the heart with a dagger, then maybe that is the same stigma of Kinslaying. And if we knew for sure it was his arrow that killed him, then you could say that with certainty. Yeah. But uh, there's some ambiguity about it, right? Yeah. That's what we're saying. That, that, and the, the, the thing I realized was that Eustace would have motivation. If he had the slightest inkling of an idea, any piece of evidence that he could say Blood Raven was definitely the Kinsler, he would use that. But he didn't. Mm. He tells his story. He's a very biased party and he tells his story and he doesn't have that clarification. And I think he said specifically, white arrows were raining down from the sky, which made it sound to me like all the the raven's teeth were firing white arrows. Maybe they were fletched with white feathers. Maybe they were wood arrows. Now, again, I don't think this necessarily discounts that uh, Blood Raven might have specifically killed him or that it would be known, but it seems like if it was known or even... Yeah, well, people call evidence, him Kinslayer, but that's just, you know, people say that. People call... It's unfair because yeah. they want to be mad at him for other reasons. People call yeah. people all sorts no. of things, you know? <laughs> it doesn't make yeah, it true, yeah. you know? Like, he, they call him lots of things. Yeah, it's not... They blame him for the so, drought. I mean, that's obviously not true. <laughs> yeah. So the further thought that I had with this was whether or not they all have weirwood arrows or whether he killed him specifically they definitely have weirwood bows yes right that is true yeah would that's this not be doubted. a sort of would this be an affront to northerners would this be a front to people who worship the old you gods know, i asked that same question on the on the a song of ice and fire or in the westeros.org forums many years ago i'm glad you asked that i don't think so because we've seen a lot of other weirwood items y- some wielded by northerners like we've seen Brandon Snow in the World of Ice and Fire uh, fletched some weirwood arrows that he was going to try to assassinate Aegon's dragons with. His brother, Torrin Stark, the king of now, was like, nah, let's not do that. But apparently he was going to try. He was willing to try. And we also have examples of weirwood spears, weirwood staves, other things like that. So I don't think that it's, I mean, it might be if they cut down a tree to do that, then that would be bad. But I think if you're just like taking branches and you know what I mean? Like that. Yeah. It seems yeah. like that's okay, given that we see uh, see it elsewhere. But I'm not 100% sure. There's a room for, you know, there's no priests. There, there's no priests of the North to tell us, you know. 
I imagine that they used branches in other parts of the tree and that they did it, you know, respectfully without damaging the tree or that sometimes a tree was just dying or it had already been killed. And so you might. Yeah, I, I consider that there may be uh, weapons from long past when where were trees were more plentiful. Yeah. Or maybe trees that were cut down for other reasons, even negative. Well, might as well use the wood for something, you know. True, true. Um, but if they're using weirwood arrows, those aren't exactly replenishable. You know, they got to keep yeah. on getting more weirwood. Maybe they retrieve all the arrows. I don't That's know. That's why I made the point about they don't actually get into fights that often. It's mostly a time of peace, you know. So they would mostly just have them and... They probably wouldn't practice with them. Maybe they would, because pra- shooting at an archery butt, you're not that likely to break them. But yeah, you know, it's a good question for sure. It's interesting. I wonder about that too. For example, if this story had happened much later, well, we know that, for example, after the next story, right, the castle is taken down. They take down the Butterwell Castle. And there's apparently wherewood used in some of the wood and uh, some of the beams. And maybe not, maybe I'm thinking of a different castle. But that's a good example of like where wherewood could come from that wasn't from a cut down tree. Like it was cut yeah. down. Like I mean, you, you, you sort of alluded to that possibility. Like it was taken from a source, an, an alternate source that was first cut down by someone and then they repurposed it. But yeah, no, it is a good question. Yeah, where do they get their wherewood? That's the kind of thing that George likes us to ask and wants us to, you know, it's like Aragorn's tax policy. You know, where do the wherewood arrows come who's, from? Who's selling these wherewood? Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, right. <laughs> Where are they coming from? Uh, I guess also to, to clarify, though, part of my question is there wasn't any that you know of particular disgruntledness of the North against Blood Raven. Was, was there any conflict there? Do we have a lot of information about this time period? No, we don't honestly uh, know how much how the North felt about him. They probably weren't big fans, uh, but they might have. It's hard. Yeah, we don't have a lot of dark opinions. Here's, here's a couple of reasons why it could go one way or the other. One, way they, one reason they might not be happy with him is, well, if he's a kinslayer, if they believe that, that's definitely not bad because the, the North takes that even more seriously than South. South takes it seriously, but the North takes it even more so. Uh, second of all, because of the stories about him using magic and stuff like that, that wouldn't go over super well either, but not necessarily worse than in the South. His heritage helps a little bit because he's Blackwood and the Blackwoods are worshipers of the old gods. So that's a, that's a plus. And he eventually goes north, like he goes to the walls, but that's much later. So that maybe doesn't help us too much. He goes to the walls, so the northern, northerners didn't hate him that much. Yeah, like they didn't kill him, you know. <laughs> the other people in the wall didn't just like kill him on sight or whatever. But also the... Uh, the Although he had a team of guards coming with him. Yeah, that's so true. They might it, not it have, would be yeah. hard to do that. You're right. They also are just... A lot of people would be scared of him. The final point is the issue of Dagon Greyjoy, which uh, that's something we, we barely talked about. I, I plan if we have time, we're going to talk about that more with Jim. Blood Raven is doing a poor job of managing that. Like he didn't send any help t- to go get Dagon. And Dagon was really beaten up on the North and the West, kind of embarrassing them. Now, maybe the North is like, we don't want his help. And that's supposed to be the king's and, and the hand's job to deal with stuff like that. So that would cause some dislike potentially uh that had come up uh, by the way i mentioned that i try to read the comments in the chat of these videos yeah and uh i think at least a couple people have mentioned things along that line is that the north is supposed to take care of that themselves you know that's mm-hmm. not necessarily the king's responsibility that's their lands and it uh maybe at some point it could become their responsibility and i'm curious assuming that it's not the king's responsibility in the first place 
what point would it become their responsibility? It, yeah. It did a, eventually. They did eventually yeah. get it done. It's not said how, uh, but yeah. B, I think a good king might do things even if they're not responsible for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's an argument for that. Uh, yeah, uh, gotta agree with you there. <laughs> uh, and also someone asked, uh, did the North, and this is an interesting question. You, I think what you said a minute ago sort of answers the question, but did they even ask for help? Like, uh, also, we may not know for sure if they asked for help. It could also be that they definitely did ask for help secretly. They might not have wanted to admit. Yeah. You know, it might have been mm-hmm. a secret envoy. Like, look. Make it look <laughs> like you Our people are have this pride, yeah. but we need your help. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, it's that's a really good question because we don't know how much they wanted help or how much they wanted to look where the North. We do things on our own. And it's also an issue like what we saw with Davos at the Merman's Court, where Davos is like, oh, the free folk, oh, this and that. And they're like, this is White Harbor, yo. The free folk are far away. We don't care about them. We don't. We care about them about as much as we care about the Ironborn, which, there you go. On the <laughs> eastern yeah. side of the north, the problems of Dagon Greyjoy would just be a story to them. It would be like, boy, that sure is, they're sure, that sure is causing them problems over there on the west coast. It's like how, you know, we're sitting here in Georgia, the Shea and I, and... You know, the wildfires in California are a big problem, but they're not affecting us directly. You know, we, we care about it, but it's the same kind of thing. We, we're just so far away from it. Yeah. Those are our, we know people over there, but like, what are we going to do about it? You know? I guess along the same line, is Biden doing anything about it? Yeah. Like, I'm sure there's some federal funding going there, but he has other it's a, worldly issues yeah, to worry about. It's a good point. California's got to fix their own wildfires. It's a good so, point. Yeah. Like, what's up to the state and what's up to the federal? Like, that's a, a constant yeah. back and forth. We're all on some level familiar with that, even if we're not in the United States. Of course, other countries have the same sort of thing. Different regional and local governments have certain things in their jurisdiction, whereas certain things are federal or what have you. And of course, it would have been way more regional before we had internet and cars and, yeah. you know, uh, we have this, telephones, et cetera. You know, this yeah. is the feudal system where certain jobs are, are farmed out. You know, the king can say, hey, it is your job to solve this on your own. And that's yeah. why we, this is what makes it so interesting is we don't have any insight from people who are there. All these stories we're hearing from people who are indirectly or just barely affected by it. Like we saw at the beginning, Dunk and Egg were like, yeah, we couldn't get as much wine we wanted because people had, you know, the Ironborn had raided here. So they were, that's almost direct, but it's still indirect. But uh, even they weren't face-to-face with them, at least not at that point. But of course, we're going to find out in between stories that they did (laughs) actually deal with some. (laughs) (laughs) So that's going to get a little more direct. But we'll come back to that when, uh, when the time comes. I suppose that's another possibility too, that maybe Blood Raven was doing something about it, but it was more subtle that we oh, couldn't yeah. know about. Like imagine how much worse it would be if Blood Raven hadn't sabotaged three ships sure, or something. Yeah, sense, you know? Maybe just sent cash or something, you know, something like that. Yeah. Let's talk about the question, the question of red or black. Yeah, we've mentioned a few times. Uh, one, generally, Martin's a good writer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and two, one thing that he does is setting up mysteries we don't even know are mysteries. And after the fact, again, you know, just doing this podcast and but fans out there, you end up reading these stories multiple times and things start to click. You're like, ah, every time Eustace talks about fighting for the king, <laughs> fighting for the dragon, yeah. other, other characters who fought in the rebellion, you realize it's ambiguous. Every time it's mentioned, Dunk and the reader is assuming, you know, the winning side. But then when you realize... Oh, the other side. That's why he's you know, so every time he said that, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and uh, so it's it's really interesting, yeah. uh, really careful writing by Martin, and uh, and also an indication of this question that 
people have to be careful what they say, right? Yeah. Because uh, they can Thousands things can go sour in, in a lot of different ways if the details of what what side they were on come out. Very, very true. Good said. Uh, and and it's also makes it fun to reread. It's part of what makes it fun to go through again is you get to look for those clues and be like, where was that? Like, oh yeah. One of the clues, for example, is just how reverent he is over, over Damon Blackfire, even as even before he reveals that he fought for him. And it's really well masked by his his discontempt for Bloodraven doesn't give the game away. Because every this, that's just a common thing. A lot of people have contempt for Blood Raven. That doesn't really uh, st- single him out. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. he's normal for disliking Blood Raven. Like Septon Septon says similar, you know, not similar. Yeah, but I was going to say, even on the other side of Eustace, yeah. Dunks is like, some of this sounds treasonous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not like, this is just kind of how people talk. They're like, yeah, that guy's a topic of conversation. And, and it constantly skirts the line of, is this treasonous or not? So there's this, the line is, is brought up directly. Sir Eustace asked Dunk whether Sir Arlen fought in the Black Fire Rebellion. And here's the quote. Was he for the Black or the Red? Red or Black was a dangerous question, even now. Since the days of Aegon, the Conqueror, arms of House Targaryen had, be, had borne a three-headed dragon, red on black. Name of the Pretender had reversed those colors on his own banners, as many bastards did. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny because the, the sigil is what determines the name, but Damon Blackfire would have been in all red armor with just a black dragon. <laughs> and that's the black dragon, mm-hmm. even though he's in all red. And then, you know, picture like Rhaegar fighting Robert and you get the idea of what, <laughs> what the, uh, the loyalists look like. They're the ones who actually look like they're in black, but it's the red dragon. So, <laughs> yep, yep. That's uh, a little quirk of how that works. So you can, for the leaders, for example, this is one thing that's really interesting. Now, we've obviously, anyone, unless you're new to a history of Westeros, you know we've covered the Blackfire Rebellions probably as thorough as we've covered any topic over the nine plus years of the show. But it's very different looking at it from the ground level with someone who was not a higher up. And that's one of the things that makes Eustace really interesting. Now, he is a, a biased source, but there's certain things that we know for sure because they're corroborated and his decision-making is not part of this other than on his own, like whether he runs away or not, things like that. As for the war itself, right? When it's a civil war, a civil war like this, if you're Damon Blackfire, you're Bittersteel, or you're King Daron, I mean, you had a direct role on whether the war happened, whether it started, whether it came out. But if you're Sir Eustace, you're just another guy that has to take a side. And this isn't one of those wars where you can just sit on the sidelines. As we've seen in the War of the Five Kings, there's consequences to doing nothing. And some people get away with it, certainly. Eustace might have gotten away with doing nothing, just sitting there and doing nothing. But obviously, a guy with his background, his family tradition, neutrality really just not, a, not on the table for a martial, a martial tradition house like his. And really given the way he idolizes this man, the way he looks at it, it's kind of hard to see him going a different direction. It doesn't sound like he would have angled for neutrality anyway. No, no, he doesn't seem like the kind of a sit on the sidelines kind of guy. The big problem here in this whole story is the conflict that builds because he won't back down, right? Like this, he doesn't have a compromising attitude in the first place. A, like, like fighting, to him, fighting is a good thing. Glory, it's, it's an opportunity for glory. It's like, it's, it's, it's one of his purposes in life that his house has existed for so long, they're a martial house defending the borders, you know, emphasizing glory and martial prowess. Yeah. Like you don't sit on the sidelines when you're, when you're like that. (laughs) 
Uh, Nina writes, just it's interesting to consider the the social aftermath. There's the battle aftermath, which is a significant thing we're going to talk about as well. But just this is 15 years later, and just the rudeness of that question. You wonder, well, you may not wonder. There's certainly a lot of history on that. Say, using the U.S. again as an example after the Civil War here, just how people. <laughs> would have conversations with each other. That would be an op- awkward topic to bring up, right? Just like, so, uh, north or south or blue or gray or whatever. Like, I don't think you would just casually bring that up, <laughs> right, Sean? You, one way or the other, uh, I mean, on one hand, that's a good analogy and maybe farther down the road in certain areas, but it was a little bit more geographically split, right? Yeah, it was north versus south. Point, so yeah. It would have been less tough then. I, you know, if you're in deep in Georgia, you're not worried about people knowing that you fought for the South. Yeah, you're right. right? That's a very good point. Now, this was neighbor versus yeah. neighbor quite a bit. It, it might be more of an issue, you know, I don't know, in Virginia, you know, some of those border states. It would definitely be more more of an issue in this uh, in this Blackfire Rebellion scenario. Yeah, you're totally right because it was, there were just, like we saw here, like the, <laughs> the fighting on opposite sides, just these neighbors were on opposite sides of the war, which that using our civil war, U.S. civil war example, that would be somewhat rare. Um, you know, it might, what might be in certain ways similar would be maybe uh, supporting the Communist Party, like the the blacklisted, uh, the McCarthy hearing, stuff like that. Oh, that okay. might be people who like have to be careful what they say or or the Vietnam War being against the Vietnam War yeah. like it. George was a conscientious objector. Remember that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We mentioned that story last time. One thing George likes to do too, uh, it's a a standard trick for him is to use um, small graphic details. Graphic details. No, I mean like visual details, descriptive details, like colors to indicate uh, allegiance or to draw comparisons. For example, poor Eustace's kids are buried, buried in the blackberries, which is... Man, I mean, they're not raspberries. They're not red berries. <laughs> they are very distinct. Not blueberries. They didn't pick any very distinct color there yeah. you pick. And of course, on the red widow's side, she has red hair. There's, you know, there's things about that that speak to other things. But her family was for the red dragon as well. So it's also kind of established that way, sort of in the in the background. As usual, George does multiple layers here to maybe distract from uh, some of the subtle points that are being made. And it's also morbid foreshadowing. And Nina writes that we, back in the day, Eustace writes that that was, or Eustace notes that they played in the Blackberries a lot. It's sort of like, uh, this is going to be their, going to be their end because sometimes they come back, you know, dirty and bloody because there's thorns and stuff like that. So yeah, it is kind of, kind of morbid. Uh, is the right word that she uses here in her notes. And I think that's perfect. It is dark foreshadowing for sure. He really idolizes Damon is the, is the, is the uh, lead in here. Damon stood straight and proud and his stomach was flat and hard as an oaken shield. And he could fight with an ax, lance, or flail. He was as good as any knight I ever saw, but with the sword, he was the warrior himself. When Prince Damon had black fire in his hand, there was not a man to equal him. Not Ulrich Dane with Dawn. No, nor even the Dragonite with Dark Sister. Flat and hard stomach? I mean, hmm. <laughs> I mean, that, that's very descriptive. I love the, uh, I'm sure you could read into straight and proud, eh? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Still, this is 
touching back on something we've we've been over a few times. It's just very much the kind of thing that Eustace looks at. He he's he cares about bearing and the way you look and whether you look the part. Like if you look like a knight, you know this this a whole straight spine. It puts way too much into appearances, which is part of why he's so anti Blood Raven. Of course, he would have been anti Blood Raven if he was handsome and normal looking because this guy that killed Damon in his mind. But still, it allows him to lean even more into that dislike because this guy also doesn't look like his ideal of a knight or a king or a, a leader. Albino skin, red eyes, you know, shoots people from a distance, uses magic. Nah, that's not cool. But what's cool is this. What's cool is flat, hard stomach, straight and proud, you know, <laughs> great warrior, leading men, a huge, huge charisma, just, just ascendant charisma. And I did kind of want to mention the way this works out in ancient Greece, because this was a debate back then. Like the Spartans didn't think men should have relationships, uh, physical relationships, but they did absolutely believe that men should love each other and that it was important. Camaraderie and male love was important. They had, but they divided it into physical and non-physical. Whereas like the Athenians thought it was good and like they were kind of in the middle and the Thebans who founded the Sacred Band, which was a group of warriors that were paired lovers, they leaned into it really hardcore. So it is a thing like in battle, you know, and and this this, like camaraderie of, of warriorhood and all that. But it's not, it's not embraced in the same way in, as a relationship. It's embraced more of a ideal rather than a, a connection. Different aspects of it are valued here in this particular setting. Whatever term you want to use, he loved Damon, right? Like, I think that's a fair way to land on it. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. Right. Yeah. Now here's, a, now, here's a controversial point. Arguably, he feels the loss of Damon more than he feels the loss of his sons. Arguably has more wistfulness over Damon's death, more pain over that than over his own sons. And here's part of the evidence for that is that he's bitter about all these things and he he talks about how it was all over and how when Damon died, everything becomes a blur. His descriptions of the battle are a lot more detailed until Damon's death and then it becomes kind of chaotic and maybe he's, maybe he ran away and that's part of, he doesn't want to say that but it's not quite clear on what he did at that point. But it's, it is pretty clear that his sons were already dead by that point. So it's not like things went bad and then his sons were killed, so it was worse. No, it was his sons were already dead, but it didn't truly go bad for him until Damon died. And that's pretty telling. Did you, do you interpret it that way? Do you have a different look on that? Or is this kind of a new idea for you? What do you think about that? Um, it's a new idea for me. I, as I'm thinking about it, it's, one, it might be that he, kind of like you just said, that sometimes we can like separate emotions or ideals. We can compartmentalize things that he might think of his sons as a certain type of loss or connection or whatever that isn't what he's going to share with Dunk. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Or, or the world. That's more of a private thing. Like it clearly matters. He goes to those Blackberries to honor them, yeah, if you will. True, true. Now that said, that still might be that the love for his sons was, I don't know quite how to say this, less, more out of duty or tradition, I guess, than out of genuine, I don't know quite how to say this, but like uh, you you have this instinct to love your child, yeah. right? They haven't really earned it, 
if you will. You know what I mean? They're just a baby and you love. They've earned it in a sort of an evolutionary way. Eventually, they'll learn it when they grow and learn and love you back and everything. But Damon earned it by actions, th- things that uh, he could now, maybe his sons also earned it. They weren't like infants when they died. So, you know. And, and I guess uh, you could say also they, given their traditions, dying in battle is a, the best way to die. But dying in a battle yeah. they lost, that's a lot yeah. more tragic. If they had won the battle, those sons, you know, he, they would be, he'd still be sad, but it would be, they died for like the best cause he could imagine, which it would help. Let's say that he was more hurt by Damon's death than his sons. It doesn't mean he wasn't hurt by sons. Oh, of course death. not. So yeah, yeah. There's a lot of angles to take on this, I guess. Yeah. Like another thought too is like, and again, this might be a little cold, but in some ways, Eustace and, and lords, I guess, can, people, I guess, yeah. can be cold. He can have more sons. Mm-hmm. There can't be another Blackfire. Well, <laughs> in his mind, it can't be another Blackfire <laughs> rebellion. It can't be another Damon. It can't be another opportunity for him to win back his house's glory. He can have more sons. Now, he never does. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There, again, this is the, it's an interesting thing to contemplate. He might have been thinking he could really know enough. Yeah, he might have been thinking at the time or back of his head, he was 15 years younger during yeah. the rebellion. So he could have been, yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. And as well, he knows that, it, you know, kind of in the, in, the, in the back of his mind, he knows that it's not over as long as Damon's alive. But once Damon's dead, that's, it just, everything changes. The whole point is gone. Uh, not only is this man that he idolized, but their whole cause is doomed as well. And, you know, then he's fearing for his own life, perhaps, which is, maybe, you know, as I said, that's, that might be something he doesn't want to bring up. But people ran away, you know, like Bittersteel ran, did his mad charge, re- returned the route, attacked Bloodraven, got back the sword, got black, back Blackfire, which was really important. Then he ran down south to collect Damon's younger children and flee overseas. So there's two different regrets Eustace has. One, that he didn't die with his sons on the field. Uh, and his king, he could have died with, because he mentions that too. It's not just his sons. He's like, I could have died with Damon as well. Or he should have kept the fight up by going with Bittersteel, which, which means he definitely wasn't part of that charge. So he was probably running away because almost everyone was at that point, except for the, on his side. So uh, that's definitely not something he's, he's going to be eager to talk about running away. You know, there's another a subtle line that happened that I appreciated that might fit a little bit here too okay. after dunk is like all right forget this i'm not fighting for you anymore uh, you know it was he, he went back to eustace to confront him about hey you fought for the wrong side and he tries to justify himself egg kind of challenges him back and then he scolds egg and tells dunk you should beat this boy more and dunk's like no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do anything anymore i'm, I'm out of here you know yeah. and then bennis and eustace start discussing battle plans and then when i take the mill kill the miller that uh, you know they're yeah. they, already egg doesn't even know doesn't like any of what's happening and he's like dunk you got to stop this you can't let them do this and dunk's like they're just blowing hot air they're, it's either this or piss their pants you know what yeah. i mean like they're not really gonna do this stuff they can't they, i don't need to stop them rohan's gonna stop them they can't do what they're saying they're gonna do but it, it is along that same line that venice and eustace aren't gonna admit that they can be beat and or that they're probably going to run away. Like the reality of what happens here, if Dunk doesn't go treat with her, right? Is it probably, once again, the common folk get killed and then Eustace yeah. and Bennis either get killed or run away. Yeah, so, yeah. 
or that yeah, they but they're not going to concede that. They're not going to say that out loud. They're not even in their own minds. They're not going to admit that. So. You're right. It's and it all goes back to how I called this like a microcosm of the Game of Thrones, like on the larger scale. Oh well, I guess that's kind of the point of me calling it a microcosm. <laughs> Department of Redundancy Department report needs to be filed. <laughs> that's what's happening here. Yeah, they're they're mostly concerned with themselves, and the peasants are an afterthought. Uh, when these high lords play their Game of Thrones, it's the innocents who suffer. It definitely comes back. That's one of the many things that makes this uh, a, a mini version of that. As an aside, that quote contained mention of Ulrich Dane with Dawn and the Dragon Knight with Dark Sister. Ulrich Dane's kind of an unknown, but if he wielded Dawn, he must have been amazing because it's rare that uh, a knight of House Dane gets to wield Dawn. Uh, so that's a, a big deal. The Dragon Knight is perhaps the most cited historical figure of the last 300 years, if not the most cited historical figure, period. I mean, he, he is really cited a lot in throughout the books from the beginning all the way throughout. He's just, you know, he's in Sansa's tales as one of the heroes. But what sets him apart from some of the other characters that she thinks about is that he's a lot more recent. Like she thinks about someone like Simeon of the Star Eyes and Florian and Jonko. Those are thousands of years old. But the Dragon Knight, uh, as of this story, had only died about 30 years before. So he died around 180, uh, 179 maybe, 178, the earliest, I would guess. Uh, this is 210. So yeah, he was brother to the Egg on the Unworthy, which is Damon's father. So the Dragon Knight was uh, related to Damon Blackfire, of course. They're all connected. Yeah, it, it's just little things like that reinforcing appearances. You know, Damon's appearance, we talked about how that big a deal that is. And then on the other side, he, George is very careful to talk about how, have Eustace drop a line on how he thinks Egg looks foolish with that straw hat. Because he's just, again, just so concerned with appearances. And that leads to his really kind of bitter descriptions of, of the king and the type of man he was, meaning Daron. And a lot of these things, it's kind of funny to us, they sound like positive traits. But, but to Eustace, <laughs> they're like, bah. You know, it, his, he was there on the good. The moniker is well-earned. To be sure, the guy made plenty of mistakes. There's plenty of criticisms that we could level at him. And in fact, we do in our episode on him. But, and it is fair to say that he may have lacked certain leadership qualities. But his dedication to peace, it's like uh, the green gray saying, peace is the pearl beyond price. In this context, it means you can put up with plenty if it means ending centuries long cycles of violence, right? You can put up with a lot if you accomplish that. On the other hand, this peace-loving king did oversee one of the biggest civil wars in history. And it's pretty hard to say that it's not his fault to some degree. You can't be king for 20-some, you know, for, well, at the time he had been king for, it was 14 years. Yeah, 14 years he before the rebellion. So he was king for a while. There's definitely, you could definitely blame, put some of it on him. Like he could have stopped it from happening, right? From the point of view of justice, the rebellion lies at the feet of the instigators. No, no doubt, right? Like, Damon Blackfire rebelled. He's the prime guy. But uh, from a policy standpoint, as, as in what you want from your leaders, you, it happened on Darren's watch. You got to blame him somewhat for allowing it to get this bad, for it, it happening. Kind of, um, you know, like Ares. Like, Ares did a lot of awful things to make a civil war happen. You can much more directly point a finger at him. It's not like that with Daron, but you can blame him for maybe not doing enough, right? It's a fine line to walk, right? Like how much is his fault? How much is uh, legitimate grievances? How much is 
just Westeros being full of crappy people that like to fight. But if blame is just blame is just not that simple. People yeah. want to point at something and blame it, and a lot of times it you can point at someone or something that is at fault. But it's not the only thing. It might even be the primary thing. And there's just a million billion ways this can go. And it happens constantly in a Game of Thrones uh, or this, this world of A Song of Ice and Fire. But in the real world, too. And it's a, it's a legal issue. Like, think, even aside from legal issue, but like, say, a drunk driver hits someone and kills him. But the person they killed wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Well, yeah. if the drunk driver hadn't killed them, hadn't hit them, you know, but also if they'd been wearing a seatbelt. So whose fault was it? It was just, at least partly both of their faults, or you know. what if you were, you know, eating a bowl of cereal? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but Eustace, but, so we can argue, or not argue, we're not arguing, we could debate about what, where blame may or may not lie. And, and I think I would agree with you that we would never fully arrive at a, at a solid conclusion, a, a, a quantifiable one, certainly not. But, there's certain things that Eustace says that I just like 100% disagree with. Like, I do not care that Damon has a flatter stomach than Daron. Like, I, that is not relevant <laughs> to me one bit in terms of leadership, right? Like, being handsomer, I don't care. Like, having more sons, like, who cares? Like, having a few sons in this, in this context, given monarchy and civil wars can break out without sons. Okay, that does maybe matter a little bit. But having seven versus four, I don't care about that. <laughs> like, oh, seven sons versus four. He's more of a man. Nah, please. Being better with a sword in particular, I really don't care about that. There's important, there's definitely important qualities. Like I do care about <laughs> being good at a sword, but with a sword in other contexts. But in this context, a ruler? Nah, you, you're, you're not a, a wise policymaker. You're not, when you're like, what makes a wise policymaker? Well, first, he's got to have a good sword. Like what? Uh, <laughs> he's got to learn how to use it. Like what? <laughs> Who's good at administration? Well, the swordsman. Now those guys, <laughs> when I'm looking for someone good with math, Someone good at understanding finances. I go to the practice yard and see who's the best. So, yeah. So I, I, you might be able to make some argument that in this time period, given that you need to like rally strength or whatever, yes. that maybe. But it's it's it, even if you argued it's the primary, it's still one of many things, and probably not the primary. And he, let's just say it was. Let's just say theoretically that some. 28-year-old young stud who proved himself in battle with his sword. Now he's king. And 50 years later, when he's 78, does he still need to be good with a sword? Yeah, is right. that still <laughs> how you decide whether he's a good king? You know? Good point, yeah. And, and that, it's very much an example of like Robert. Robert, unparalleled warrior, right? Like he was charismatic. Like Robert's a fantastic example for Damon Blackfire, except that Robert won. Um, but we can imagine that I don't know that Damon would have been a bad king. I don't know that he would have turned into uh, an alcoholic and, you know, an abuser. I, I don't know that any of those things at all, but it wouldn't be super surprising either. It wouldn't be surprising if he had been not a good king, even if it was a completely different kind of bad king, you know? But Robert really is a great example of someone who's a fantastic warrior, full of charisma, the kind of thing you're saying that it really does help to have those things in battle. Baylor Breakspear, like, that's one of the things that worked well for Darren. Like, yeah, Damon didn't, or Daron didn't have that, but his eldest son, the one set to inherit the throne, did have all those qualities. Yeah, I do, real quick, I want to throw out, it is, I, I even though there's a million problems with Eustace, I appreciate that George didn't make him just this pure, antagonistic bad guy. He does have, he wasn't being totally greedy about what fight, side, he, side he fought on. He wasn't yeah. just doing it to win castles or whatever. He had this belief in the leader. Yeah. And Egg asked him, like, why, if you weren't doing it for your castles, why did you do it? And Houston says, you ask me why? 
because Damon was the better man. The old king saw it too. He gave the sword to Damon. Blackfire, the sword of Aegon the Conqueror, the blade that every Targaryen king had wielded since the conquest, he put that sword in Damon's hand the day he knighted him. A boy of 12. That is impressive, a boy now, of 12. But, yeah. but now, <laughs> still. everything I just said is still, I still don't think, like, uh, I'm trying to, like, give Eustace some credit for not being purely selfish, but he still, it goes back to this martial, traditional mentality that he has of he's a better man because he got the sword. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, like, he was worthy of uh, the sword. Still yeah. not really the best reason to follow a leader. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. If you're, fi- if you're following him into battle, yeah, like, make Damon your battle commander. Heck yeah, that's awesome. You know, like, he's perfectly suited for that. First of all, by the way, how dare he call the old king Aegon IV. The old king is Jaehaerys I, the conciliator. <laughs> but never mind that. He, he's referring to Aegon IV, who, as we've said many times, is, is arguably the absolute worst of all time. Arguably worse than Ares, arguably worse than Magor. He's in that stratosphere of, of top three or bottom three. <laughs> and has a strong claim to being the ab- actual number one worst so this is the judgment you're you're falling back on here eustace like this guy's like the old king saw it too that guy his opinion is who <laughs> you're justifying this over like i that's that seems to tank your argument in my mind if it wasn't already kind of a bad argument i mean imagine choosing yeah. our leaders based on marksmanship or mixed martial arts or whatever like Whatever the modern yeah, or imagine is. choosing our leaders based on their first sons. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, we did you won the gold medal in archery. Your son should be king. <laughs> Only your first son and not your daughter. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> it is all pretty. Good. Not that there aren't plenty of silly ways with how we do things now, but it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, I think we're doing better. Yeah, I think yeah. we're doing better than we used I think to. So yeah. I wonder how much Duncan knew of all this history because after Eustace makes this argument. Dunk's like, all right, we're done here. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> you're right, because he says he was three or four when this rebellion happened, so most of it is just things that he grew up under this cultural shadow of, of this event that happened when he was too young to, to understand it. It's basically been the only reality he's known, though, right? He's grown up in a society that red or black is a dangerous question, and it's still fairly fresh. And if you think of, if, you, if we fast forward to afterwards after he we they find out and he's having his second conversation about what he loved about different black fires and all these other things he he, he lists off all these heroic names right uh, and most of them we don't know who they were we just, we can have an idea based on what family they were part of but as far as their personality but it doesn't reflect on them well that the ones we do know were kind of jerks like bittersteel is he's like bittersteel what a fantastic warrior and hero we're like well very determined, incredibly formidable, you know, single-minded, but not a good person, you know, not a good man. The kind of man that Eustace thinks is a good man, though, because, again, great warrior, determined, doesn't give up. Like, that stick-to-itiveness, the, the never-say-die attitude is uh, something he respects. But we compare Bittersteel to John Connington. And do you think John Connington's a good man? Hmm. Again, formidable, you know, dangerous, but good? Eh. I don't think so. And he also mentions Gorman Peak. We, we learned how awful Gorman Peak is in the next story. This is another guy. Eustace is all like, yeah, Gorman Peak. Like, eh, you know, so these guys he's naming, if these guys are the, it leaves the unknowns like, well, if Gorman Peak and Bittersteel are in this list, these other four names, ah, <laughs> they might be kind of scumbags too, or just the same kind of hardcore, you know, great warriors that maybe are 
questionable or problematic personalities. So mm, I don't know about that. I guess that's just building on the same theme. Nina has a good point here about used another thing that he pins on Daron as as a negative. Says, he sold his own sweet sister to the Prince of Dorne, though it was Damon that she loved. That is just nonsense. First of all, Damon was already married. <laughs> so what, is he going to marry twice? Which does come up in the world of Us and Fire. Apparently, he, he was asking for permission to do that. And I mean, this isn't selling his own sweet sister to the Prince of Dorne. This is just like any other king marrying his one of his relatives to to make a political marriage. And I mean, he built the water gardens for Yeah, this Daenerys, guy turned so, out to be a good prince. Yeah, it wasn't a bad marriage at all. Yeah, there's no evidence whatsoever that Daenerys was sad over not getting to marry Damon Blackfire. Damon Blackfire may have been a little bitter, but again, the war broke out seven years later. So it definitely wasn't like the immediate trigger. So yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, we got to be careful taking these, what these guys say at face value. It's a good example of just how biased Eustace is. And here's what I was saying before. Here's another quote. Doesn't this sound like a good thing to you, fellow historians, Ashea, Sean? Let's read the quote and, and see what we think. You can know a man by his friends, egg. Darren surrounded himself with maesters, septons, and singers. Always there were women whispering in his ear, and his court was full of Dornishmen. Yeah, I remember when I read this, even the first time, I'm like, well, that sounds good. That's, <laughs> what's wrong with that? <laughs> you can always know by a man by his friends. Well, that sounds like he has good friends. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, what's wrong with women whispering in his ear? What's wrong with Dornishmen? I mean, singers maybe aren't great for policy. Let's, that's right up there with swordsmen. <laughs> like, they're not. Septons, eh, they're not, maybe. Some of them are okay. Maesters, though, that's good. Like, maesters, knowledge, yes. <laughs> knowledge of how droughts and water and sanitation and health and medicine, so many valuable things. Like, that one by itself is like, you damn well better have maesters at your court. <laughs> I, I still think, by the way, if you could choose, all right, which one of these people do you want to be in your court? Mike Tyson or Beyonce? <laughs> Beyonce, right? Like, <laughs> Beyonce, yeah. She has more leadership qualities, yes. <laughs> if you're looking to start a pot farm, then maybe go to Mike Tyson, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or if you're trying to what? like do an expo, uh, do a, like a, a, a you know, a, a documentary and face tattoos. Yeah, Mike Tyson is a pot farmer now. Oh, how cool. Yeah, he's okay. a big, big pot business. <laughs> that must be what the reference was in The Simpsons. They had... Um... The, the Mike Tyson character. Oh, okay. Tatum. Dredrick Tatum. Yeah, yeah, Dredrick Tatum started a pot company. Yeah, he's okay. uh, Mike Tyson's life is pretty interesting. <laughs> Love him or hate him or somewhere in between. That man has worn a lot of hats, but boy, is that another topic. Okay, uh, back, back <laughs> onto this. Yeah, so, and if we look ahead, it's kind of neat to think about this too. Egg, who's sitting here listening to all those. Egg's going to be plenty friendly with Dornishman. His brother is literally a maester. <laughs> and he is going to continue to push the Targaryens away from incest, although some of them were going to undo some of that <laughs> after him. And he's going to marry, he's going to listen to his wife a lot, Queen Beth of Blackwood. Uh, you know, that's a woman whispering in his ear. Of course, whispering in his ear makes it sound like they're conniving. conniving. Yeah, good choice of word there. Manipulating. Manipulating yeah. But it is what Eustace would think. He wouldn't yes. consider that they actually have valuable opinions. Yeah, because they're not, they couldn't be, war they can't be warriors, so how can they be good people? How can they be, you know, they're not. How can they help you? Right, yeah. that's his attitude, which is. <laughs> what do they know about human nature or. <laughs> yeah. It's these yeah. kind of things that make it like, damn, this guy is like, you really understand why these traditions that he's attached to need to die. You're like, yeah, your way of life does kind of need to go or change dramatically. This is not a good 
tradition. <laughs> it may it, it probably had its place back in the day when the world was tougher. I mean, it's as as uh, Rohan says with her sarcasm at that point. She's like, "What does he think this is? The age of heroes where you can pay a blood price?" You know? <laughs> yeah, he kind of maybe that's going a little far back, but <laughs> he is living in the past. He's nostalgic and all that. Yeah. You know, it sucks, though, is as you phase him out, now you get Roose Bolton and Tywin Lannister Ooh. and <laughs> Robert Baratheon. Like, it doesn't get that much better. You, know? yeah. <laughs> at least these... you need to get a little farther, a little progress, a little farther past this. Yeah, Eustace at least isn't, like, torturing people in his basement. That's a good point. <laughs> so, <it's> a big, <laughs> you could definitely be a lot worse. <laughs> yeah. And there's also the, the whole attitude of birth, right? That was, this is an aspect of, of the Blackfire Rebellions that we didn't really mention that much. It, it, it's, it's, and even Eustace doesn't mention it that much. Maybe it's not that important to him. But the rumor, and it is a rumor almost certainly, started by his own father because he didn't like his son because Theron the Good was so much different than Aegon the Unworthy. The false rumors about Daron not actually being Aegon's son uh, so he could, you know, give his pass the throne on to someone else. But uh, that didn't work out because Aemon the Dragon Knight was like, no, my sister did not cheat. And I will fight anyone who says otherwise. And well, good thing he's so legendary and, and unstoppable because someone did challenge him and well, Aemon won and that was that. So trial by combat. And you know, one of the good sides of trial by combat is that when you win, well, it's kind of a nonsense justification for winning, but it does work. <laughs> you know, people are like, well, yeah, yeah. God said, all right, then. So that really helps solidify Darren as the actual son of Aegon, which, by the way, I love pointing this out. This is in like one of John's first chapters, this stuff about Damon and Daron. And well, Damon isn't mentioned by name, but Daron and Aemon the Dragon Knight and whether or not this cheating happened. So it's way like in John's, you know, it's like, hmm, so John's chapter, you say, and it's Aemon Targaryen who's telling the story because that's who Aemon is named for. Once again, all the dots connect so nicely across many timelines, and it's just awesome. Yeah. And another indicator of how much George had mapped out before he even started the first bits of the story. Yeah, you know? I mean, people say the whole, there's the whole gardener architect paradigm of writing um, George is certainly a gardener, but that doesn't mean he didn't do some architecting, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just, he was just yeah, I think I read somewhere he said something like, you know you planted tomatoes. Like, you know something about your garden at the beginning. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you might not have a, a whole plan mapped out, but you know that you put carrot seeds and tomatoes in there. They, they might grow different directions or bigger or smaller, but you know what you planted, so. Yeah. So here's a quick bit uh, on the cloak. This is, uh, it's fun that we just talked about John uh, because this calls to mind another very early John moment. I actually think it might be his first chapter, but Eustace giving Dunk an Osgrey cloak, Nina writes is, is maybe like groundwork for the white cloak that Dunk is going to get from Egg a long time from now. Uh, and the cloak is white wool, even though it's dyed, but still, you know, that's cool. And Egg talks about how he wants to be in the King's Guard one day. And that, of course, isn't a John thing. That's a brand thing, but it sets up the comparison to John here nicely. We've got a pair of quotes for y'all. First of all, Dunk responding to Egg. That's a noble thing. But when you're older, you may find you'd sooner have a girl than a white cloak. Which compared to okay. what Benjen says to John uh, very early in the Game of Thrones. I am ready to swear your oath. You're a boy of 14, Benjen said. 
Not a man, not yet. Until you've known a woman, you cannot understand what you would be giving up. Later in this episode, we're going to talk about romance and Dunk flirting with Rohan and vice versa. And Dunk is going to have a lot of ancestors or descendants. So he clearly is going to know what he's giving up when he takes the king's card. <laughs> he's like, boy, I need to slow down. I've got like up to 12 kids out there. That's enough. Yeah. No mas. You know, this reminded me of another question I had. I wonder if there was any clues to Dunk at one point. I, th- I think it was... Uh book when he's thinking about where they're going to go next mm. with egg or maybe it's somewhere yeah. else but anyway he thought about the idea one day i'll go to the wall and maybe find some tall man that maybe he's my dad you know dunks reflecting on his fatherhood yeah, it might have also been when he was talking to egg about yeah hey i'm probably a bastard don't talk too poorly bastards i'm probably one right yeah and he wonders if maybe he might find his bastard dad at the wall well, he, and, he does go to the wall to escort Eamon and Bloodraven there many uh, years from now, but we don't know. What he may happens. have gone at some other point before yes, then, but absolutely. but do we have, do we know of any tall person at the wall that might be in that time period that could be a candidate for Dunk's father? Well, at that time period, we don't know anyone at the wall at that time period, um, but we do know someone at the wall at the start of A Storm of Swords who didn't, wasn't born at the wall, but is probably Dunk's ancestor, Dunk's descendant, which is Small Paul. Because the line is small, Paul, thick as a castle wall, which, of course, Dunk is called thick as a castle wall, I think, 20 total times, (laughs) sometimes (laughs) by himself, uh, mostly by himself, actually. But (laughs) uh, through remembering, apparently it happened a lot when Sir Arlen was alive, but he met it, you know, he meant it in a kind of somewhat... uh, Endearing. Yeah. So it's kind of an open question. Now, he, he also does go north before going to the wall, and he may go to the wall during that time, because we know he goes to Winterfell. Whether he goes farther north to the Wall is not clear. Decent chance he does because, well, if they're going all the way up there and he wanted to see it, why would, you know, it's like Tyrion, like, when, am I, when else am I going to be up here? I may as well do it, even though it's a lot farther to go. Yeah, I suspect you're right that they do go before that, but whether or not he finds his dad, that is, I got nothing. I got nothing at all. <laughs> all we know is that he, he definitely has kids. <laughs> Dunk himself. Okay, let's talk about the the castle, Cold Moat itself. Cold Moat came as somewhat of a disappointment after all that Sir Eustace had said of it. Compared to Storm's Den or High Garden or other lordly seats that Dunk had seen, it was a modest castle. But it was a castle, not a fortified watchtower. Its crenellated outer walls stood 30 feet high, with towers at each corner, each one half again the size of Stanfast. From every turret and spire, the black banners of Weber hung heavy each emblazoned with a spotted spider upon a silvery web. So as we saw, there's evidence it used to belong to the Osgrays, which is kind of maybe something George got from history. There's plenty of castles in the real world that have evidence of their prior owner, even now, or multiple owners. For example, Nina gives us an example. The Hampton Court, Henry VIII, had divorced and tried to erase the memory of Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. But... There are so many carvings of their sigils here and there and everywhere. You know, it's like sending out a, a thousand flyers and then like, let me get all those back. Like, you're not getting yeah. them all back. <laughs> like, you might collect, recollect 990 of them, but there's 10 more out there. Yeah, so basically, there's still there were still a few uh, pomegranates, which were the symbol of Catherine's, her part of the family or her house, whatever. There were still initials of Henry and Anne with lover's knots that were carved into a few sneaky places and, and, and other places. So it's just like, yeah, you can't, can't erase that. Not, alone, not only can you not erase the history of it, but like <laughs> there's these <laughs> physical evidence. And there's this lion 
there. Uh, uh, what, what Dunk recognizes a lion, but it's been worn down by wind and weather. Vaguely reminds me of, of Brienne seeing the worn dragon. Uh, it looks kind of like a dragon up in the uh, in Crackclaw Point when she's being led around by Dick Crab, Nimble Dick. So it is a lot bigger than Standfast, even though it's not super impressive compared to other castles. It is, as you said in the quote, and you emphasized it, it's still a castle. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that is not to be despised. It's got a moat, even if it's dry. It's not, but even if it were dry, it would still be useful, which is an important point. Uh, and it has lots of defenders. It has men. Yeah, it's... I think in a, in, a, in a moment when she meets, when Dunk meets with Rohan, and he's talking about the, uh, that's Osprey water, you know, uh, and she points out like the Lannisters are a castle rock. There's no casterlies there, yeah. right? She, she names all these areas that had one house name, but a new house is there. Times change. Yep. And here we see, this is just more evidence of that. The writing is literally on the wall. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well said. Good said. So let's talk about the moat though. This is a great, a uh, conflict point, we could say, where it's like, it's almost paranoid for her to to think she needs the moat filled with water. But there are reasons for her to project strength at all times. Uh, so it's kind of a good example of where maybe she's going too far. Certainly she has a right to defend herself. Certainly she has to defend herself more so and project more strength because she's a woman in a misogynistic society. She has these restrictions placed on her directly uh, beyond that. So she needs to need to be strong. But on the other hand, there, it's a drought. Like, no one's going to come attack her. Uh, this is a, it's almost like armies in winter. You just don't do it. You don't mass armies in winter because you can't feed them. It's the same thing. There's no way you could have an army of any decent size at this time during a drought. No one's going to be doing that, let alone the fact that the realm is at peace. Where is this army even going to come from, let alone how is it going to feed itself? So how much defense is she really sacrificing by not having water in that moat? From us, as a human, and from a human perspective, we would say it hardly matters given that that water is needed to keep people from dying. Uh, so I'd say from a human perspective, this is very straightforward. She doesn't have a right to take that water because people need it to live, whereas she's in almost no danger at all. On the other hand, legally, that's a separate issue. Legally, I think she's right, technically, that the water is hers. I think she's on solid legal ground there. Yeah. It's worth noting that one... That moat isn't her only defense. Yeah. Dunk points that out too, right? It's yeah. not like you're completely helpless if you don't have this moat filled with it's water. It's still a ditch. It's um, still useful, even empty. Yeah. Right. She has a castle. She has a freaking castle. She has guards. Yeah. And the moat is still like a deterrent against attacks on a castle, whether there's water or not. And it's also worth noting that uh, even if she has a legal right to it, it still might not be the, the best moral decision. And there may be some questioning for her legal right to it or whoever granted that legal right may have some question behind it. A lot of this stuff is covering that Learned Hands podcast, by the mm, way. Nice, nice. Um, but, but also on top of all that, it is important more so for her to project her strength, especially because on one hand, I, I, I pretty much agree with you. It's unlikely for someone to raise an army at this moment. But people might be more desperate at this moment. Yeah. And that water is Bible. Like there may be a legitimate threat of someone cut, like making a gamble. Like my lands are drying up and my people are starving. And if I don't do something, we might all die or lose our, I might lose my power, right? I could attack 
And it's risky because my troops aren't fed well. Morale is low. But if I win, I get that water. Mm. And now, uh, you know, it might be worth the risk for someone. Yeah. I don't know if she's actually worried about that, but I could see it. I could yeah, see definitely. It. And this is, again, is, is just where, why I wanted to emphasize why this is like a micro Game of Thrones. You got so much push-pull from so many places, political, personal, and you bring up one of the most important here, survival. Just ap- straight up survival, right? Like that, in a lot of ways, that trumps everything else. Because if you can't, if you're not surviving, like what is the other stuff? Like it's irrelevant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and usually that, that's not an issue, but these are unique times yep. with this drought. Absolutely. And, uh, thankfully they avoid the fighting, but that's another thing about this that's, you know, similar. Like they, they get right to the, the cusp of disaster by going to war. Thankfully they don't. Let's take our first set of questions here and then do our little mid-roll and then we'll get back to it. Super chat from the TKOK Podcast Network. Happy name day, Shay. All right. Thanks, Tommy and friends over there. Always good I to hear from them. Take a moment to say that their last guest was me talking mm-hmm. about Fantastic Planet. And their next guest is Girls Gone Canon talking about Dazed and Confused. So join in. Yeah. Austin Flowers says, Werewoods don't like don't sound like the ideal tree for bows. Something skinny and strong is best, like shade of the evening. Yeah, I guess maybe the wood is tougher than we think. I mean, it does slowly turn to stone. So maybe like, maybe it's in that part way. Maybe <laughs> when it's like 10% stone, it's really good. <laughs> maybe it's like a Valerian steel. You have to know how to work it. You have to have the right oils or yeah, burning, uh, you know, heating process or whatever. One suggestion here also from Austin Flowers is that it comes from petrified weirwood from the raven tree's dead tree, which has been dead for a long time. And I said, I don't think so, because I think all of that would be gone by now because it's not regrowing. So I yeah. think it has to be from a living weirwood. It's been dead for so long. Yeah, I, I kind of tend we, to agree with you there. Yeah, raven tree just wouldn't have a weirwood anymore. Yeah, but... mm, good question. Julie A. says, any history of Westeros episodes on weirwood? I'm curious if it offers protection against white walkers or other magical qualities. We do have two episodes on werewoods. We have one more on the werewood trees directly and another that's just a sort of a tour through where all the werewoods are throughout Westeros that we know. It's one of our earlier sets of episodes. 2014. 2014. It's part of our Religion and Magic series, which has four parts. And uh, it was before Fire and Blood, but honestly, we didn't like get werewood stuff and fire and blood. So it was before that. And I believe that's also before the world of ice and fire, which would be more significant. So they neither has a lot of direct, like obviously the world of ice and fire and fire and blood aren't deep into the mystery of the white walkers because they're history books and the maesters don't know much about that at all. So I I don't think it provides protection against white walkers because they seem to have a connection to the trees as well, but it might be a different sort of connection. I'm very curious about that. Certainly the cave ward that keeps the undead from entering Bloodraven's cave has werewoods flanking the entrance, which so that could indicate that it's part of the magical protection there. But I, I don't I don't think so. I feel like the old gods, they're a creation of that power. So I don't know that it would be anathema to them. Um, and so far we haven't seen that. Like obsidian is a big problem for them. And that's been known for a long time. I think if werewoods were a problem for them, it would be known in, 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 in a manner sort of like how Obsidian is, no, is a known uh, weapon that works really well against them. I think that's probably our best clue. The lack of suggestion that it's helpful is probably our best clue that it isn't. 
Dornish Dame says, it is a bit of a contradiction. The son, Aegon the Fo- the son, uh, Damon of Aegon the Fourth, gives Blackfire to and gets a huge thumbs up from Eustace. Yet so <laughs> yet so does the son Aegon sent away from court, Bittersteel, who didn't get a sword. <laughs> uh, Nina suggests the answer here, which I tend to agree with on site, at least without thinking about it too much. She says, I would bet Bittersteel blamed that on those no good, very bad Blackwoods, which is partly true. It is the this back and forth between the Blackwoods and and Brackens, which was a part of that, because Bitter Steel is a Bracken, Blood Ravens of Blackwood. So, yeah, a lot of reasons for those two to hate each other <laughs> besides that, but that helps. Phil H., who is the woman Benjen experienced? <laughs> so he would know what it's like. And in the chat, <laughs> I think a lot of us think that there was no one that he regets not having done what he recommends. Oh, that's why here. he's saying it. He's that's like, why no, he's don't saying be like it. me. He, Interesting. He yeah. slept with a woman before he chose to do this. Maybe he has some regrets about show, about signing up, but whether or not he might have wished that he had done this before he take, took his vows. And I think a lot of us in the chat also think that he ended up going to Molestown or he has now slept with a woman. So he is able to say, I missed out. Yeah, he's like, dang it. <laughs> what was I thinking? Yeah. I don't know if you guys agree with that. That's uh, a great theory. Thought, you know, I like that a lot. Maybe he had slept with someone. He was 16 when he signed up, roughly. I'm not. I, I think my default is that he probably had slept with someone beforehand, mm-hmm. but still regrets it. So he's still like, you don't know anything you do when you're 16, 20 years later, you're like, I don't know what the heck I was doing when I was 16, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> whether he had slept with a woman or not. So. John Swo, a great catch here, points out the moment when Dunk realizes the sun was rising in the west, and then he thinks about that and realizes that it's fire. Now, this could be a way for George to tell us that Miri Mazdur's line to mm-hmm. Danny that Drogo will return when the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. That could be set up, showing us that there's another way for that line to happen without it literally being of the sun rising in the west, which that... Probably be a massive fire in the distance. Yes, uh, yes. So that, and of course, with Danny, fires, hey, doesn't take a lot of imagination to guess what might cause the fire or at least might draw her attention if it has nothing to do with her dragons or anything like that. Uh, also related to the wood, we had talked about this briefly before, but not this aspect of it and how it's kind of an irony that only the king and Osgrays can use that wood that was called Watt's wood. Nina points out that Watt is exclusively a peasant's name. We have never seen a lord or a knight named Watt. It is very much associated with lowborn mm. people, which is really, like, so you have this wood named for a peasant, yet only the, <laughs> the highest yeah. born people can use it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, good one. From uh, Cat Ovivus, regarding the blood price, uh, here's some historical context. Thanks for this, Kat. This is much appreciated. She says, a historical comment on the blood price, which was used in old times. George was communicating some real-world history there. In early medieval time in Europe, i.e. before the 10th century, crimes like severe injuries, rape, or even murder were in many places not punished by hanging or beheading or cutting off body parts. Instead, the culprit had to pay a blood price to the injured person or, in case of murder, to their family. And there were price lists, like predetermined, like if it was a thrall, it was a daughter, if it was like an adult son or whatever, these they, they really did have like a price sheet for these things. It's kind of gross to think about, but in a way it did help avoid worse problems. Another one of those things where it's like, well, if it wasn't for this, it would be actually worse because they would just go, each family would slaughter each other. This is a way to avoid blood debts 
uh, our blood feuds. You agree on a price, you have a predetermined price. That way you, there's no haggling because once you get to haggling when people have been murdered, like negotiation is really difficult in times like that when, you, when, when you're hot under the collar and you're angry, right? So it, it's, it's helpful to have these things settled ahead of time, even as dehumanizing as they are. You know, this isn't words. necessarily some old time thing. We have, this is how the modern world works. We have lawsuits. That's true. You're right. Like actuaries, put you might on also be persecuted like by the law, but a lot of times, even you get you, you're not found guilty because the crime wasn't quite there wasn't quite enough evidence to convict you without shadow of a doubt. But there is enough evidence to make you pay a million dollars. Yeah. And there's, I mean, this is not some weird leftover thing from ancient times. This is basically how our modern system works. You pay a blood price when you enter somebody. That's true. It just isn't called a blood price. It's just yeah. It's just yeah. It, it's called the, lawsuit. The price is different. The price doesn't involve blood, although you could argue that yeah. if you take everything someone has, you've taken their life, basically. Like, you may as well call that yeah. a blood price. You know, it's yeah. not... Blood price maybe is not the, quite the right phrase, and it goes beyond just the, someone's cut cheek or murdered son or something like that. But, you know, if like if you had killed or stolen someone's horse, there's probably some price you'd have to pay. Yeah. Well, if you destroy or steal someone's car, there's a price you have to pay, you know? And if you're rich enough, you can avoid prison usually yeah. by paying lots and lots and lots of money. There's more lawyers and more, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, certainly. For better or worse. Even so if you kill it's a more standardized <laughs> now. It's probably more fair. It's probably accounts for more things, yeah, it's, but it's less it is yeah. a good idea on a lot of levels. You know? Yeah, and as always, it's better than, uh, in most ways, better than what came before, which is what we're trying to express here with... Starting a war, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like war as, as Green Grace. Once again, we'll call, we'll bring up the Green Grace. Peace is the pearl beyond price. She's got a point there. <laughs> I think she's lying about some things. I think she's... <laughs> we're not getting into that. By the still. way, <laughs> as pacifistic as I am, I think justice is the pearl beyond price, okay. I think. Well, that I, is, I, I yeah. put justice over peace, I think. Okay. Well, some yeah, it's it's a good back and forth. I, it's a word. I guess you can have multiple pearls. priceless pearls. You can have multiple. <laughs> priceless yeah, why pearls? have one pearl only? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Want to shout out our friends over at Shire Post Mint, as we like to do from time to time. Head over to our website, historyofwestros.com. You can find a link to their site where you can find lots of cool coins and related trinkets from a variety of excellent fandoms. Not just a Song of Ice and Fire, but of course, that is the one I recommend the most. I have a lot of their coins here in a big fun sack, a big fun coin sack. Let's talk about the Septon. Septon Sefton, what a great name. Very, very interesting character who is part info dump, part character study, and part maybe test. A lot of interesting parts of the scene. Not just the things he says, but the way the scene is framed and what might be going on behind the scene. <laughs> uh, one thing that Nina and I chatted about and apparently, Sean, you thought about it too separately. So this is kind of uh, an idea that's out there that's worthy, which is that Rohan was listening to the whole conversation, um, the whole this whole setup of Sefton Sefton being very friendly and open, got the wine, like just trying to get Dunk to talk, see what kind of man he is, see what he's going to say, kind of get the measure of him, which is seven feet, but his personality, <laughs> right? So, and I think that just she might win a different measure, yeah, right? Ha. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she wants to measure his hard, flat stomach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See how straight and proud he is. Yeah. <laughs> so, and he's a Septon. So Septons, people are, are are more likely to to trust a Septon or to open up to a Septon. So there's all these factors that really align with getting someone to, to be loose with their talk. Wine, Septon, geniality, friendliness. 
So you noticed that too, huh? And it really makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So one, remember that the Septon walked in, quote unquote, walked in on Duncan Egg also. Yeah, that's right. Like he heard what they were saying. They thought they were speaking kind of privately, saying things that they would not have wanted Rohan to hear, you know. They're joking about the poison and all that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But he doesn't, he doesn't like, I don't know how, he doesn't chastise them. He's like, hey, He, he like jokes about the poison. He follows up with what they're saying. He's, he engages with them. And on some level, this seems like he's uh, spilling the beans. He's like giving away stuff. Rohan might have wanted to keep secret. But even if she didn't specifically send him in there to say that stuff, she probably knew it. I think that she's some combination of trying to be fair. Like she knew she was going to spy on them, you know, so she wants them to get information. But it also strategically is good for her. It helps win him over to her side. She suspects correctly that he has a lot of biased ideas about her. She's coming from Eustace. She knows what Eustace has told him. She wants him to know the truth of it. And it's a lot more helpful for someone else who establishes trustworthiness to give Dunk this information. Does that make sense? Like if if she just walked in and said, Eustace is the bad guy, uh uh-uh. Like, you know what I mean? But instead, (laughs) she slowly leads him to the truth through the trust that the Septon gives and gets from Dunk, the information that he gives, the information that she follows up with. And it even makes more sense when you think about how prepared she was. She's like, bring out the document. She really kind of knew how all this was going to go. Yeah. And he's like, oh, she's, you know, you know, women are, she's, she's probably choosing which gown. It's like, nah. Yeah. Like that's part of the delay. Exactly. (laughs) Like, no, that's just something you say. Yeah. It's, it's the more we talk about it, the more I'm sold. That's exactly what's happening. It's also too, if you, if you pair it with what happens a bit later, where she basically tries to recruit him, like, well, you put this in context with that. It's like, yeah, they're setting up to talk about how good she is. Cause he, one of the things she, he says, Oh, she looks like she kind of likes you. You know, he's not saying like she's into you, like she's attracted to you, which also turns out to be true. But he was just saying, yeah, it's the lady likes you. Like she takes, she, you know, that's a good start. You know, you're in, you're yeah. in like, you started right foot forward, that kind of thing. Uh, she also makes sure to keep Long Inch out of this. Yes, because she Inch knows. Like, I'll bring, I'll bring the Septon up. They're like, no, 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 just send him here. I, yeah. She does not want Long Inch messing this up. Because you know? she just saw what he did and she's, smart enough to yeah. realize, right? She's smart enough to realize what he was doing and smart enough to realize... He has a different agenda. Yeah, and she's smart yeah. enough to realize, that, see the male ego at work behind there. Like, she says, like, he's never... Like, you're the first person in a while that he's seen that wasn't taller, that, you, you know, that, that it wasn't shorter than him, so... It was a potential threat. He needs to belittle you. Yeah. You know? More on- but even aside from that, Long Inch has a different agenda and is not going to let Rohan carefully, tactfully lead Dunk to the truth here. Yeah, and she knows that he has this other agenda because it's very clear that, uh, as, as yeah. it's pointed out, that he was tasked with keeping unworthy suitors away from her, which she didn't really need that help, as it turns out. But he's <laughs> basically keeping every, everyone away because he's going to be like, I'm going to be the suitor. By keeping everyone away, I assure that yeah. it'll be me. Now, that's, uh, <laughs> as we see, that doesn't work out. But it could have worked out. Is another one is what ifs. If Dunk wasn't around, that's, very decent chance that's what would have happened. Other interesting thing about Septon Mar- Septon uh, Septon is he's highborn. He's not like Septon Maribald. He's of House Staunton. That's one of the uh, houses in the Crownlands. They hold Rook's Rest, which y'all might remember from the Dance of the Dragons. There's a very uh, important battle there. It's a chess reference, almost certainly. I mean, Rook's Rest. 
there was a Howard Staunton who was a chess player, a famous chess player, and their sigil is, you know, basically a checkerboard. So <laughs> it's not exactly. <laughs> I don't know if this is a theory, more like, okay, this is a chess and reference. Yeah. To be clear, <laughs> George really likes chess yeah. enough that he used to go to chess tournaments yeah. and ru- help run them. So he's a big fan. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah there's even I more challenge you, George. <laughs> Let it be known. <laughs> challenge has been issued. Yeah. And also, there was a Joffrey Staunton that served in the King's Guard after the dance. So after Rook's rest and was, was, took, uh, took it on the chin, so to speak, from uh, being used as a trap by uh, Sir Kristen Cole, and it didn't go well for the people of Rick's Rest. One of the things that makes Septon Septon so compelling and interesting as a character is that he spent all his time in King's Landing. I mean, he's, he's probably the most worldly person present in this story. Like, all that time at court, uh, he, he's, le- he's biased, but he's way less biased than Sir Eustace. Yeah, he still has negative things to say about Blood Rage. We pointed this out earlier, but, I mean, he expands on it. He names more names. He talks about King Aerys, being just locked up in his library, just consulting scrolls all the time. His wife, Eleanor, who's Eleanor Penrose, who has Targaryen blood. Uh, she's a cousin of the, of, of the family. Uh, that's in the Cranlin's house. She prays for kids, but Ares doesn't come to her bed ever. Uh, the raven's teeth are kind of like the castle garrison, basically. Uh, he says that Brendan Rivers, Blood Raven, is putting all his friends and favorites in different positions. He says the new Grand Maester is steeped in sorcery, which uh, that, by the way, is a really interesting point. So we have the Maester, or the Grand Maester, the Hand, and the King, all deep into prophecy and sorcery. That is a super compelling note to consider when we realize that Blood Raven, his not only his actions here could be used as lessons for Bran, but this prophecy track began and this far back leading to events like Summerhall and where Bran is now. So it's super fascinating to think about all that, but it's also a humongous topic, not, not a small one. Can um, I make a small correction? I think you said that the Penrose, that Eleanor Penrose's family was from the Crownlands. Oh, it was Penrose of the Stormlands, isn't Stormlands. it? Stormlands. Okay, my bad. Um, which is just notable because yeah. they are Dornish marriages and then they married into the Stormlands. So, oh, uh, okay. Know, cool. In the, uh, Good correction. Thank you, thank you. Yep. By the way, the Crownlands were carved out of the Stormlands, kind of like Washington, D.C. was carved out of Virginia, right? Sort of, but they're also carved out of part of the Riverlands. Like, it's kind of weird. Okay, because, I guess D.C. came from Port of Maryland also. Yeah, or, because so, yeah. the Crownlands were sort of, in de- parts of it were sort of independent, but claimed by different kings. At the time of Aegon's conquest, the Iron Islands ruled that area. But it wasn't the Iron Islands. But it's clearly not the Iron Islands, right? <laughs> it's just they had conquered yeah, it at that yeah. time. So, yeah, these, these things are... The, just what counts as the Stormlands and what doesn't isn't entirely consistent uh, from era to era. It's more of a guideline. So that, isn't that really fascinating? Thinking about Bloodraven as a harsh ruler, as a guy that rule, whose attitude was similar to Joffrey in some ways, not like cruelty, but in the, like, no hard, but in, like, the hardline way, like, you kill all traitors, or they rise, or they'll just rise again. You know, that kind of hardline stance, which even Tywin thinks is going too far. So, like, thinking about how that can interplay with the type of lessons Bran is taught, and how to go forward, and is Bloodraven still like that, or is he, has he learned that that kind of hardcore attitude isn't 
great policy? Or is that the kind of approach he's going to take towards this war against the others? That's maybe war isn't the right word. War for the dawn. I guess it's, it's pretty much the right word. What is, is, it's a lot to think about, Sean, but how does this strike you? It's a lot to think about. Yeah, and, uh, okay, when I was, I was thinking about the idea that like, even Tywin thinks that's going too far. Well, that's going too far. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, well, for Tywin, it's not because he thinks it's too cruel. It's just that Tywin is a, you know, he looks at the result. He's he's seen history. He's like, no, it yeah. works better to allow them to surrender. Less people die. There's less yeah. destruction. Less territory gets ravaged. He's not like, it's not the ethical considerations. That, it's just bottom yeah, line. Results. That was part of my thoughts. Yeah, yeah was it, it, it? Tywin probably wouldn't mind being that cold or ruthless or whatever, but he still is looking more at the bottom line. Yeah. And in Blood Raven, is he going to look at the bottom line? You know, ruthless or cold or whatever it is. Well, and, and, there's yeah. a lot to speculate on. We, yeah, this is where the personal and the political really overlap. Because with Tywin, we're just talking about Tywin's a good example where it's it's not that personal. I mean, it has been. And so, in some, not, not to be clear, in some cases for Tywin, it's extremely personal. But just in this policy, it's not. Uh, but for Blood Raven, it may have been because he developed this policy about punishing or not punishing traitors against the Blackfires, who he has a bajillion personal feelings about. He hates bitter steel. He, you know, right? Like he, the way he behaves against them consistently throughout his career is a person who feels the whole thing very personally, right? It's not you know, just political. A, a couple things to uh, other factors in here that might not occur to you right away. Like one thing that makes humanity distinct from other animals, we better get to build on the knowledge of prior generations. Yes. Books and now the internet, right? And it can catapult us forward once you get to a certain point very quickly, yeah. you know? And another thing that's hard to think about the impacts of is just living longer. How Having more lessons in your brain. Now, sometimes people are stubborn or you, you don't remember everything you've ever learned or whatever, but just living to a hundred probably gives you a different perspective. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. anyone would probably have a different perspective on life, but someone like blood raven living to hundred who has been in a lot of unique positions through their life has had a lot of world experience and even has like these mystical connections added into everything. So I, I, even now at my age, a lot of my, who I was at 15, a lot of it is still there but a lot of it is completely gone. A lot of who I am is completely new and different from what I was, I don't know, 20 or 30 or whatever years ago. Um, yeah, that's a good So a yeah. lot of Blood Raven, whatever he is at 100, may still have some roots in yeah. what he was at 25 good or metaphor, 35. metaphor, roots there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's also got to be an entirely new life worth of experience and opinion and knowledge and everything else in him. So. You're very right. You're very right. Like one prime example is he says when he's telling Bran there was a brother I loved a brother I hated a woman I desired he at this time if you had asked him he now, at this point now mm -hmm. he thinks he loves Shiera Seastar but later he's like nah I just desired her because she was like the hottest woman in the world the status the mm -hmm. beauty all that so yeah so you're that's a perfect example of something that he he, he looks at differently now in retrospect uh, he still hated and he says I hated Bittersteel maybe he he probably still hates Bittersteel, but even that's probably, I mean, the, the man's been dead for 50 or 60 years at that point. So like, does he still hate him with the same intensity he hated him when he was a living being? You know, probably not. <laughs> and with, you know, with that hate dying off, it allows him to rethink a few things. I feel bad. I can't remember the comedian's name, but there's a comedian I listened to recently. He's like, in, the, in my, you know, you change as you grow. And like in my 20s, 
that's the only thing I thought about was getting laid. And now the only thing I think about is not being thirsty. <laughs> like I, I carry chapstick in my pocket, not a condom. Like <laughs> Back to Sept and Sept directly. Just he, he, the, the different topics he brings up. There's a number of rabbit holes here. We'll try to control ourselves and be more direct here. He tells the story of the great spring sickness. It's somewhat casual. He says it's dreadful, like, but he's, He's not expressing how personal it was for him, but you got to feel like it probably was. I mean, he was living there. 40% of the population of the city died and a lot of the faithful died, like a higher percentage of people in the faith because like the silent sisters, almost all of them died. The, the hand or the, the septon, the, great, the, high, the high septon died. Um, and that's a big deal. That's who he was working with. Uh, so I, you got to think that the silent sisters were probably working with the sick. Yes, Directly. More likely to catch it and die from it, like how tragic that is. Definitely. They're absolutely the, the, the perfect or the best example of frontline workers that we have. And I wonder if the, like the drinking is the drinking all the wine is part of like getting dunk to loosen up a little bit, but also might be just like this guy might be traumatized. He might just be drinking. He might, he might drink a little bit to, uh, you know, deal with it. That would be pretty human for having seen all those things. Now, you have a question here about the hand. Yeah, I was wondering if we knew who that hand was that died. And I see that, that Nina responded with, it's hard, it's possible the way he worded it, that Valar was the hand. Yeah, I pointed out, I said that Valar was the hand, but I can see the way it's written. It's, it's a comma. It, the, the way the, it can be read, Valar, the hand, blah, 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 who died, or it was Valar, the hand, who died. Yeah, so it's... Yeah. It's not clear. I, is he naming a series of yeah. people that died or uh, giving it an attachment to one of the people that died? Yeah. Either way, it's whoever was appointed right after uh, Baylor, and it wasn't very long. The sickness came on pretty soon after Ashford Meadow. So yeah, very interesting character, fascinating person, and this whole scene is really interesting. But let's move on to the guy that was kept away from it. And you made a really good point about how what would happen if, if Inchfield was present. And just the fact that his presence, let alone, if, even if he's being quiet, because look at how these two interact with each other. Just, just being in each other's presence makes them, it's like they're two animals, like two alpha animals that just, they see each other and they just have to fight. <laughs> it's like, ah, I see you, you see me, we must fight. <laughs> I mean, someone's got to assert their dominance, almost like Rohan, right? Otherwise, you're going to get my food or my land or whatever. Yeah, it's very primal. So here's the, the first bit of the quote here. And he is angry, Dunk sensed. Even before the man said, hedge knights are beggars with blades at best, outlaws at worst. Be gone with you. We want none of your sort here. Dunk's face darkened. Yeah, and then a minute later, mm -hmm. the only thing Dunk was certain of was that he wanted to drive his fist through Lucas Infield's crooked yellow teeth. So yeah, so they, <laughs> they hate each other right away. <laughs> I will say, though, that I don't think Dunk started off hating him. I think that because Dunk doesn't feel threatened by him. Right. He feels threatened by Dunk. Like, not only is Dunk physically on par with him, but he might be a suitor. In the same way, the Septon was like, oh, I hope maybe you're a suitor. Longinch is probably worried that he might be a suitor. Longinch is angling himself to take this claim, yeah. right? And he, this guy might be a threat to that, not just to me physically. Dunk doesn't have this peace in his mindset, yeah. right, at this moment. But once Inchfield does embarrass him and insult him, eventually Dunk's like, all right, screw this guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? It comes up. Yeah, it comes on pretty quick. I'm, I think maybe I interpreted it slightly differently than you, but we're pretty close on that. I think maybe Dunk was... Also not like immediately aggressive, but it took very little for him to 
yeah. go into <laughs> into <laughs> aggressive mode or at least have that perspective. And this is not the first time that getting called a brigand, you know, he really doesn't like that. That's part of what upsets him is being called a brigand, being talked down to like that. In The Sworn Sword, it's this line, I'm not a brigand. Dunk told the two of them with all the dignity he could muster. And in The Mystery Night, <laughs> we have... Gorman Peak, who we mentioned earlier, who are these two mm-hmm. brigands? Asked the writer on the bay, and Egg is like, "You have no call to call us brigands." So this time, Egg steps up with the answer, but it's a similar kind of moment. Yeah, Juliet says, "I like the true line, uh, the through line of Inchfield from Dunk to Brienne. Dunk meets Lucas Inchfield when he goes to Coldmoat, then fights him in a stream while Brienne met Owen Inchfield in Renly's host. Owen takes part in the bet to claim her maidenhead, and after he makes an advance and kisses her without permission." Brienne knocks him into a fire, <laughs> pushes him over, and he lands in a fire. So <laughs> knocked into a stream, knocked into a fire. Yeah, pretty cool. Nice little uh, reversal there. And uh, Lucas's prank is so lame. It's like, uh, this isn't funny. I mean, I don't mean it's not funny because it's cruel. I just mean it isn't funny. Like, I'm one of the easiest people on the planet to get to laugh. Like, you all, anyone who listens <laughs> to my podcast, this podcast for a long time knows that I will laugh at my own jokes. And I will laugh at pretty much any other joke with very little prompting. O'Shea and I once went to a taping of a Netflix comedy show. And I was thinking to myself, man, they are lucky to have me here. Because I am, <laughs> I am what you want in the audience when you're a comedian. You know, like you want lots of me in the audience. It was also risky because it embarrassed her too. Yeah, right? that's true. Yeah, Rohan wasn't yeah. exactly happy about it. Um, and then, although what Hellison says later, I have in our funny uh, moments, we'll get that at the end. And Dunk, of course, he's very gallant about it. He says, I'll read the first part here. He says, it was not her doing. The mistake was mine. You lie most gallantly. I know it was Sir, Sir Lucas. He's a man of cruel humors, and you offended him on sight. Hal Dunk said, puzzled. I never did him any harm. She smiled a smile that made him wish she were plainer. <laughs> Thank you. I saw you standing with him. You're taller by a hand or near enough. Been a long while since Sir Lucas met anyone he could not look down on. She senses that right away, which I really like that, that she's smart enough to, to sense this sort of dance of testosterone or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> or at least yeah. even if it's somewhat one-sided. There's this line you cited. This is pretty good. You lie most gallantly. So that is not only referencing the past, but the future. Like Dunk multiple times has lied with good intentions yeah. and is going to in an attempt to resolve this exact conflict. Another good, maybe a piece of wordplay from George that uh, Juliet noted here, given the, the way she handles him and is like, no, don't descend the maester, don't bring him, you know. And she makes the point that he's given his name. It's like she knows that if she takes, gives an inch, he'll take a mile. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so let's talk about her. She's awesome. She's a really interesting character. The Red Widow, obviously, there's a lot of setting up with rumors around her, and then it's all these surprises. George does a great job of mixing sort of expected basic misogyny with mysteries, showing how people will fill in the blanks with even more misogyny when they're left to their own device when they don't have the information. And of course, people do love to gossip and bring powerful people low. There's always there's a schadenfreude. You know, that's that's applies equally um, across powerful people, I suppose. But there's also legitimate surprises. I mean... Frankly, like, we give people the benefit of the doubt. We try to as much as possible, I I like to think. It's compassionate to do that. It's understanding. It's kind of what we would want from ourselves. But we're also human. We have limits to what we can fit into our worldview and and not start to wonder. For example, if you heard of someone being widowed four times, 
you your brain would definitely almost certainly assume an older person not necessarily old but not well short of 30 like what like that yeah. is a legitimate <laughs> surprise and that's nothing sexist about that that's just huh that's unusual in modern times you find someone that's had four spouses die you should be a little suspicious. Maybe there's a great explanation. And in this case, there is. I don't think she killed any of her husbands. I see no evidence for that. But from the outside, it is like, especially in a spot like this, where we've talked about lordship being akin to demigod status. It is something people will kill for. It's one thing if you just kill your brother just because you want to. Like, that's a lot harder to, like, assume about somebody. But there's a lot of motivation to murder in... <laughs> situations like this. And then there's the superstitious stuff like red-haired people of unscientific conclusions like red-haired people are angrier. You know, just little things like that that just add up to paint this interesting picture about this of this character who is a mixture of uh, rumor gone wrong and wild coincidence and, and randomness um, with a lot of other things. So what's your... Uh, high-level view or of Rohan to start off here, Sean. What do you want to say at first? I love a lot of things about it. I, I, I love that uh, we get a central female character here in the, the role that's traditionally a man's, and we get to see how she tries to manage it. And I think that it's also very interesting. I will say the first time reading a book, very quickly, I was like, there's no way she's evil. You know what I mean? It's, it, it's like, it's too one-sided. It's too over the top uh, how she's being painted. There's got to be more to it. And I, I still did assume she was going to be 50 or 60 years old. I didn't yeah. think that she would be young. I didn't think she'd become like a romantic interest. But I, uh, but I also didn't think that she was this evil witch. You know, yeah. I knew there had to be more to it. And, uh, and it, it's something that uh, Martin knows too. It's not just that the people around Rohan feed into these rumors or have these assumptions. There's a lot of stereotypes come from somewhere. People don't just like randomly make something up. There's usually this tendency that we see a lot of and then ascribe it across the board. And sometimes it's even safe for good to do that. Like if you eat broccoli and don't like it, well, later on, you might've had raw broccoli and now someone wants to give you like broccoli and cream soup. You know what I mean? Well, you might like that, but you decided already, I don't like broccoli. You know, I can see sometimes why you can save some time or heartache by basing a future decision on a, a past experience. But a lot of times you can be very unfair or limit yourself or whatever else. And and as readers, I think we do this as we read about Rohan. We do the same thing that the people in this fictional community do, make these assumptions about her. So do we. And George knows that. That's why he wrote it that way. That's why it gives us a good surprise and subverts expectations. There's a reason expectations exist yeah. and there's a reason it's easy to subvert them. So. Yeah, good said. Yeah, and like, for example, building on what you said there, like the red-haired thing, I was joking about how there's that stereotype of redhead people being more angry or whatever. Well, there is a grain of truth to that. Any kind of thing where people constantly have something pointed out about them or if the fact that there is this false superstition out there that gets repeated, well, that can be irritating to the people on the other end of it. And so, yeah, maybe they're a little, a little bit irritated because people keep talking about this or people keep yeah. using this ridiculous superstition and throwing it at them. So It could be like a that would be self-fulfilling annoying. prophecy kind of thing. Yeah, you know? right, exactly. Yeah. So they're not like naturally more angry. They're just, this is a thing that constantly would be out there that might irritate certain redheaded people because it gets brought up or it's just insulting yeah. or whatever that people talk about. A lot of times yeah. people embrace something that they're told that they are or should be. Yes. Whether they would be naturally, they they accept it and are that way. And like sometimes it might, you know, I know redheaded people that say that they are 
that I'm, I'm raging red. You know, they like it's almost like a point of pride that they're angrier because they're rare. Maybe it's justification for their bad temper. You know, yeah. Uh, and and you see people do that with things like I don't know horoscopes or whatever. You know, that I was born in January, so I'm or fickle or whatever. So that so you decide I am fickle, or you justify your fickleness because someone told you that's what you were. I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's a very good point too. Yeah, and as far as like the other side of this, as far as how they react positively to each other. Nina draws our attention to something very interesting about their own personal relationship status, which is, yes, they're very flirty with each other. Yes, they're attracted to each other. But it's more than that. They realize that there's a bit of a kindred spirit thing going on here, which is that Dunk's been chasing this girl, or not chasing, trying to find Tanzel. He's been pursuing, uh, trying to find this person and failed. Uh, And Rohan is in this spot where she's love is basically out of the question in terms of all these things surrounding her marriage restrictions. So she doesn't really get to think about that. It's almost a luxury. So like having someone she's actually like into who's attracted, uh, also attracted to her, it's almost sad because she can't engage in it. She doesn't have the leeway to have a fling with Dunk or certainly not to make her, make him her husband. I think they sense that in each other, that they... If time and place was different, you know, sympathize with each other for being in this spot where they're both people who finding love will be difficult. Uh, he's on the road Real quick, all the time I just have and, to, and she's got this restriction. I just have it. to interject that there's a reason why I have this once poster up on my wall. Okay. <laughs> if anyone has seen that movie, this sort of unrequited love is the theme of it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> really fun point here as well what's going to happen in the future. Now, this is, I'm not sure, you may have seen this in the notes, but I don't know if you know this. We'll go, we'll proceed because some folks out there may not know. So let's read this next quote. Were I given to wagering, I should place my gold on Gerald Lannister. He's yet to put in an appearance. They say he has golden hair, say he is golden haired and quick of wit and more than six feet tall. And Lady Weber is much taken with his letters. The lady in question stood in the doorway beside a homely young maester with a great hooked nose. You would lose your wager, good brother. Gerald will never willingly forsake the planet, forsake the pleasures of Lannisport and the splendor of Casterly Rock for some little lordship. He has more influence as Lord Tybalt's brother and advisor than he could ever hope for as my husband. And can I just say, is the reason you have the Godfather poster, Sean, because Rohan's going to make him an offer he can't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> I did think about it a little bit. It's more because uh, the idea of, uh, I was thinking of the parallel between Al Pacino being a young warrior of sorts, maybe a little naive, getting into this crime business, not, not, you know, maybe not knowing the, the fullness of it. It's certainly the wife is in that role. And it's kind of like Dunk. It, Swearing his sword to Eustace, maybe not knowing he's not really the good guy. So, okay. Yeah. There's at least some parallels if I'm stretching. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Septon Septon would win his wager. Gerald the Golden is going to be the quote unquote winner of this uh, marriage, um, of her hand in marriage. Gerald the Golden is Jamie and Cersei's great grandfather. And of course, Ty- Tyrion's as well. Gerald will succeed his niece after she and her father both die somewhat mysteriously. So it looks like he's going to have his cake and eat it too. He will probably be involved in the murder of those two uh, because it is very suspicious. 
And then he's going to have four kids, Tywald, Tion, Tytos, and Jason. Tytos is the famous father of Tywin, the, the one who eventually had uh, the sex worker as his lover. And Jason is the father of Joanna, who Tywin marries. So that's because, uh, of course, Tywin married his cousin. And uh, Dunk, of course, is probably Brienne's great-grandfather. To be clear, when, when Aziz says probably Brienne's great-grandfather, he's definitely her ancestor. It's yeah. just a matter of how far back it yes, goes. Yes, it is confirmed. He might be like a great-uncle uh, or something. Yeah, he might but, be a great-great-grandfather, yeah. you know. We don't know whatever. how many greats are in there, but yeah. 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 <laughs> By the way, I like I find that that naming convention, Tywold, Tyon, Titus, and Jason. If I was Jason, I'd be like, hey. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there was someone I saw recently. There was like this, this family, like the daughter's names were like Summer, Autumn, Winter, and the brother's name was Doug. I'm like, <laughs> thanks, mom. <laughs> Gotta give me something. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so that's pretty cool, huh? We don't know how this, a lot of this develops. Like, Rohan's gonna marry. Gerald, and then vanish. We don't know, like in the year 230, she just disappears. And that's probably going to be related to a topic in Dunkin' Egg in the future. That might be like a tie-in to something. They might hear about it. Uh, maybe she won in the Fantastic Four? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, it's interesting because she obviously won't be that old by then, but she will have had these kids by then. It's four children, Tywald, Tion, Tytos, and Jason. So yeah, interesting, interesting. Nina cited a really um, interesting post from Joanna Lannister. You guys might have heard, um, actually, I've been on panels with her. I'm a good friend of hers. Anyways, Joanna Lannister pointed out that obviously Rohan is the grandmother of Tywin. And so if Tywin is the one who had the tunnel built to Jataya's brothel to visit it more regularly and secretly, which she does think is certain, and I think it's very likely as yeah, well. Yeah, same. Um, mm-hmm. Then there is a sex worker there who just happens to look like Rohan Weber. Rohan here has, quote, red hair bound up in a braid so long it brushed past her thighs, a snub nose, and a light spray of freckles across her cheeks. Meanwhile, Dancy, the sex worker, is, quote, pug-nosed with freckles and a mane of thick red hair that tumbled down past her waist. And so it seems like Dancy could possibly be Tywin's daughter taking after her great-grandmother, Rohan, Mm -hmm. or otherwise related to Rohan. If you all recall, but and during Valeritas, we were pretty we pretty thoroughly covered the possibility of 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 this connection between Tywin and Dancy. So this definitely builds on it, and I love it. It's a very good catch. Thanks, Nina. Thanks, Joanna Lannister. Uh, yeah, she is excellent. Check her out on Tumblr. She writes a lot of great stuff. And I, I will post for our discussion next next time a bunch of art of Rohan Weber that I've commissioned for Joanna Lannister in particular. Hey, right on. Days, so. Okay, so uh, there were two other suitors, maybe three that are mentioned, and they're just so lame. Like, just like Inchfield's bad joke, his prank, it's just like, one of like more like Duncan the Dim. Like, what? That's, that's not creative. <laughs> that's not funny. That's not clever. Eh, whatever. So, uh, but these two guys are kind of afterthoughts anyway. Uh, one of them is apparently so deep in debt that, you know, so Rohan's like, yeah, I don't, why would I marry him? And the other one is, is, is like a coward. So same, same, same. By the way, I, it just occurred to me that, that the lame attempt, lame and mean attempt of Longinch to mock Dunk with the name compared to the Septon 
He's like, Duncan the Tall. Oh, man, I would have been Duncan of the Cloud. Oh, I would have yeah, been Duncan the Immense, right. you know. He's a little more creative and I uh, can't think of the word, but like respectful about yeah, it. You know, he's, he's trying to give him some credit or whatever, rather than him. take him down. Yeah, which fits yeah, really, flattering. Thank you. Very well fits what we were trying to describe is probably going on in that scene. Very, very good point. He's trying to, yeah, he's trying to, yeah. A couple of quick comparisons here. Rohan might be partly inspired by the character Nynaeve from Wheel of Time who was also short and loved to tug on her braid. George is definitely a fan of the Wheel of Time series. The first time we ever met George, he was in, uh, he was hanging out with Robert Jordan's niece. Yeah, this was um, at a convention that had a Robert Jordan room. So, and she was like in charge of it or whatever. So uh, that was cool. So I think, yeah, like that, that character is similar in that way. Maybe not too much else, but um, some of y'all may have noticed that, or if you're Wheel of Time fans, now you have that in your mind as well. A whole bunch of us might be Wheel of Time fans coming up when the TV show comes out and we decide to read the book. That's we'll right. See. It's in November. I would not want to lead a reread of that. I have read it, but man, what a big undertaking that is. <laughs> <laughs> I do support other people who, who are going to undertake that, however. <laughs> Another interesting thing that happened in this chapter was... um when Rohan was trying to recruit Dunk and she's like, Hey, we could take your squire too, you know? And he's like, I trained my squire. She's like, what do you do? Have him chase chickens. And Dunk's like, I do have him chase chickens. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of like Arya chasing cats. Yeah. You know, it is totally. kind of good training. And then I started thinking we were drawn to parallels to that dead tree cat. So the other kid might be the, the checky lion. Like, wait, Arya's chicken cats. It could be like chasing Lannister lions. It could be setting up in her youth. She's training, you know, she's getting ready to hunt down some Lannisters. Are the chickens like dragons? Eggs? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Super- <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fire chickens. Uh, okay, so let's talk about how it's going well. Duncan, Rohan, look at the verbal sparring. There's lots of sexual overtones to it. He's handling himself pretty well. Then he just... As Anina puts it, the emotional landmine of Adam Osgrave. I like that phrase. Uh, there's no way he could have known. That's why it's appropriate to call it a landmine. But oh boy, does it blow up. She just gets really mad. There's definitely some long-held anger there, some trauma. Yeah, just whoops. You know, he couldn't have possibly known. But they had a real relationship. This is exactly the kind of thing we talked about before. She hasn't, in her position... Uh, marrying for love is almost out of the question. It's basically just maybe you get lucky with your husband not being a scumbag. Maybe you get even luckier and they're someone you love. Uh, but Adam is who she would have chosen. And once again, no way she could choose that. It's a very, very powerful moment because it comes after we've gotten to know that almost everything about her that we've learned is, is exaggerated. She's very human. She's decent. And so uh, this reaction comes after we learn that she's a decent person and thus it hits a lot harder because like eh, using your prior example if it's like Bruce Bolton getting mad all of a sudden we're like we don't care it's like oh you struck a nerve poor sensitive Bruce but no you realize this is like a real connection that they had that was lost it's like a not a Romeo and Juliet thing but it's it's in that neighborhood of doomed love of like it wasn't going to work out like the Lord said no you guys can't get married because it was floated the idea was already had already been floated in the past but rejected so yeah what did you uh, what are your thoughts on on the faux pas one is I think it's interesting that if I remember correctly later on she does even sort of concede to Dunk she's like you know 
it, it wasn't appropriate for me to get that upset at you. The fact is, it was I was a little girl. It was so long yeah, ago, yeah. and I, it wasn't I, I, kind of like we talked about blood raving. Like reflecting back on it now, like how, how strong or real could my you know, it, it feels real, and it, and it really was the enemy. But when I reflect on it with some maturity, it, it's not worth what I have caught up emotionally in me over that time from so long ago. That kid that I didn't really even know that well, you know, she, she's unlike Eustace, able to reflect on the past more fairly. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. Uh, more open-mindedly and uh, is able to apologize. Now, she still has her own stubbornness. She still isn't backing down <laughs> about <laughs> Venice, but she maybe has better reasons for it to going on a little bit of a tangent. Uh, I don't know how much we want to talk about this, but I mostly just want to point out later on when uh, Dunk is a little frustrated with Egg, and he's like, do you want me to give you a clout? And he's like, you already gave me a clout at the door because Egg kind of <laughs> mouthed off at the guard, remember? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, I'm a squire. Don't talk to me. Like, then the guard like put a spear and Dunk gave him a clout in the ear. And yeah. Dunk's <laughs> like, that was just half a clout. <laughs> he's like, the Red Widow gave you a whole clout. And he's like, yeah, it's just a... It's nothing. Yeah, he downplays that <laughs> for multiple reasons. One thing, he's a big, strong man. He can't admit this four foot yeah. eleven woman has hurt him. But also, he's trying to down. Remember, he also downplays it to Eustace because it's an it's an affront. Yeah, exactly. You, she struck my was, envoy. Like, oh yeah. He's like, uh, it didn't didn't even bleed. Yeah. yeah. It, especially again because it does make sense. It is consistent for Eustace to to feel that way, just like when Bennis cut her man. Eustace was like, you what? You can't do that. You can't attack her. You know, like, so it, it makes I sense mean, that he was surprised by that. And I mean, yeah, I mean, you could say that's pride, but that's an example of them being a good lord and lady. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's yeah. true. Another aspect of this is Eustace taking Adam to war at a questionable age. Now, 12 is not that unusual. Heck, we just heard Damon Blackfire get knighted at 12, but he was, he was special. He was a prodigy. Doesn't seem like Adam was anything like that. He was more, you know, normal. And it seems like Rohan's maybe a little bitter, even though it probably would never have worked out for them anyway. Part of her bitterness over Eustace taking the, the side of the Blackfires is that it led to this. And, um, I mean, Eustace bringing Adam to, to war, I mean, he was really young and he had three sons. You leave one son home. That that's, is that's usually why yeah, you have you three sons. That is not abnormal. In fact, it's common. You're right. That's a very good point. Yeah, you... you you're, that's why it's part of the concept of the heir and the spare. Yeah, he had he had two heirs and a spare, yet he took all of them. <laughs> so, yep, not good, not good. That, of course, sets up the return. He goes back uh, to Standfast, and they have to figure out another approach because of the Adam thing. And that really opens up a lot of questions, which which sets up a number of events, like many of which we've discussed already, like Dunk saying, okay, actually, we're going to leave which sets up the other thing we discussed, which is Egg realizing that they should stay or else people are going to die. They need to stay for that reason. But also, Dunk just rethinks some things. I mean, Eustace makes one really good point that we've discussed already, which is that, you know, if the Blackfires had won, they'd, the Red Dragon would be the, the traitors, right? They would be the loyalists. Like, that's just how it is. The winners decide. So I want to finish today with discussing just this one aspect of the aftermath. The aftermath will also discuss with Jim next week. Um, but we wanted to get a, a, a start on it and get some of Sean's thoughts on it. We'll, we'll introduce the topic with 
uh, a quote from George directly. Ashe, you want to read this one? War is so central to fantasy, so much of high fantasy, and yet it's these bloodless wars where the heroes are killing unending armies of orcs, and the heroes themselves are not ever being killed. I think that if you're going to write about war and violence, then show the cost. Show how ugly it is. Show both sides of it. There's also, on the other side, which sometimes gets me into trouble with the other side of the political spectrum, is the glory of war. Those of us who are opposed to war or would rather not have war tend to forget about it or try to pretend it doesn't exist. But if you read the ancient historical sources, people are always talking about the glory of war, the banners that stirred the heart, the banners in the wind. In medieval days, in the Middle Ages, everything was brown. The clothes were brown. The ground was brown. It was brown centuries. <laughs> but the knights would come out in colors. They were the only people rich enough to, avo- to afford dyed clothing. And they'd be in their blues and their crimsons and their yellows. They must have seemed glorious to the peasants who were coming in their metal suits and going into combat. But then, after the battle was finished, there would be like severed limbs everywhere and pools of blood. You read descriptions of the Hastings battlefield after the Battle of Hastings was fought, and there literally were streams of blood and giant pools of blood. There's a lot of blood in a human being. Yes. I think that if you're going to write about that period, then you should reflect honestly what it's about and capture both sides of that. Whatever emotional stirring we feel when we see the banner proudly flying in the wind and we hear the bugles charge and the drums are beating and the army surges forward, there's also the aftermath. I guess you need a, a dam for all that blood. <laughs> so Eustace himself is, of course, this, is, this quote is, we cite it because of Eustace. I mean, there's a quote from him, Sean, you read this one, uh, his own way of justifying it, his own sort of take on this aspect of it. Quote. A great battle is a terrible thing, the old knight said, but in the midst of blood and carnage, there's sometimes also beauty, beauty that could Break your heart. I will never forget the way the sun looked when it set upon the red grass field. 10,000 men had died, and the air was thick with moans and lamentations. But above us, the sky turned gold and red and orange, so beautiful it made me weep to know that my sons would never see it. That's incredible, right? Like, it's, it's George is right. People do really glorify this. And just thinking about that, Eustace's point of view, I cannot grasp that. It's absolutely real. George is totally right that this is a real thing. People really feel this way. But man, the guy is like, Thick with moans and lamentations and blood, but the sky was pretty. Like, ah, oh, damn. <laughs> it is weird. Like, the best <laughs> I can get from it is maybe it makes you appreciate life more. Yeah, yeah. Seeing all that death or having faced it yourself, maybe it makes you happier to still be alive, I, I, I guess. You know, that, that's, that's my attempt to understand it. But well, It's partly why I wanted to end with this is because it's something we can start with next time with Jim. Is when we talked with Jim about this, it was, it, it was a lot of it was on discussing Barristan's battle speech. And how he said the same thing. He's like, the only time he truly feels alive is when he's, his life is on this razor-thin margin where it could end at any minute. And that's, it's, it's got to be a similar thing for guys like Eustace where it, it, they feel most alive in these moments. And this is just after the battle, like after that feeling of ex- exaltation. And now, yeah. <laughs> there, there could be uh, maybe an amount of, I can't think of the word I want to use here, but uh, it's like a mental block. 
it, mm. it's a way to not think of how tragic it is that your sons died yeah. or that an entire village worth of men died when instead you think about how happy you are to be alive or how beautiful the sun is or something like that. So like maybe that's one, why can't I think of the word, a way to suppress it or whatever? Uh, I, I um, think suppressing is the right word or, or he's compartmentalizing yeah. it or, or yeah. And then another factor is that evolutionarily, the way our brains work, like right now, if, if we wanted to design a human or design a brain, right? If we started from scratch with all the knowledge we have, we wouldn't build the brain we have now. Even a tree, if you wanted to make a tree, you would design it a little differently than how it has evolved over time. Over time, it has had to deal with different things along the way. Yes. And your DNA and the core of your brain get built on top of what's already there. Yeah. You never like redesign the middle of it, right? And so in the core, the lizard brain is just this drive for food and sex part of the drive for food is violence. So like to run, to escape, or to attack. It's in us. It's no matter how much of a library of past generations we have to inform ourselves, no matter how enlightened or moral we are, our, our more advanced brain can decide to be, we still get hungry. We mm. still want to have kids and love our kids. We still have these very base instincts and they might be stronger in some people than others, or might we might grow up with them with other factors evolving our our brains but it it clearly even in modern times we have warriors if you will like if it's not like actual warriors in rwanda you know killing people in the jungles you know certain countries are still going through war times as as a world and as our culture mostly has evolved past that but we still have i think much better outlets for it whether it's like American ninjas or, you know, you know, the competitions, football or whatever. And maybe those are so problematic, but at least they're tackling each other with helmets, not stabbing each other with swords. Yeah. But it still has this inner survival instinct tied up in it that you can see how useless has that, you know. Yeah, they're playing it's kind of playing off those natural parts of our being. Like it's encouraging it's remembering those, like those artifacts of our yeah, like when when a guy is running as fast as he can towards the end zone with someone chasing him, there's a little bit of running from, you know, wild animals <laughs> in his DNA yeah. that's helping him go just a little running bit faster. From a tiger or yeah. running towards a, a deer or, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> another thing too is that, you know, Clint Eastwood, a lot of his movies are about cowboys and soldiers and stuff, but fundamentally he is really against violence and war. But that's really the theme behind most of his movies. And I'm thinking about America's Sniper, for example. It's based on a true story about this guy who killed like 50 people in Iraq. And, uh, but the idea is that, you know, he didn't start off as this murderous monster. He was a good guy and we trained him to kill. Yeah. Well, guess what? Now he's a killer. You know what yeah. I mean? That, that's what happens when we go to war. We train people for it. We don't train soldiers to negotiate and make peace treaties. You know, yeah. we train them to go kill. It's it's in us. And when we try to bring it out of people, guess what you get? You know, it's 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 all still there. Yeah. You can't untrain that yeah. part of people. Um, and you can't take away from the fact that that they have killed. Yeah. So that's a great point. And this is all go coming back to the main point here, which is how people justify or deal with or or glorify battle and war. This is such an old concept. One of the oldest works of literature we have is the Iliad. And 
this is directly from the Iliad, this quote, which you could have, Eustace could be saying this line, these lines right here. For a young man, all is decorous. When he is cut down in battle and torn with the sharp bronze and lies there dead, and though dead still, all that shows about him is beautiful. But when an old man is dead and down, and the dogs mutilate the gray head and the gray beard and the parts that are secret, this, for all sad mortality, is the sight most pitiful. So he's basically saying that death and battle, there's a beauty to it, and that, you know, death of old age is not. Um, and this is what Eustace is resigned to now. He's like, well, I'm not going to die in battle. I'm, you know, I should have died and I should have died in battle. I should have died with my sons. Their deaths were beautiful. And it's just the same glorification. Like, how can you, it's so strange to just like, I, I am slightly exasperated at Eustace's attitude about like, yeah, the sky is pretty, even though all these people are dead and still moaning <laughs> and bleeding. It's the same perspective here that Homer is, is showing us from the ancient Greeks of 800 to 1200 BC. And, you know, you know that this, this idea is, it's the best thing for your, few, like, like, you're going to die. They accept that. The best death possible is one that proves you were doing your best. And to them, doing your best is standing in, you know, facing your enemies with courage and standing up for what you believe in and things like that. Um, there's no better. You know, my mind can't. Yeah, just the nature of my mind is just try to spin things every different way, and and, and you and you know you're you're finding ways here to to make sense of that. And I, I was even also thinking about the idea that like you were good chance if you die in battle on some level, you're dying for someone else's cause. You know, you're 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 showing some loyalty, you're showing some bravery. You could see the positive things that might have gone into that, but a. Maybe if you were a better warrior, you wouldn't have died. Maybe if you were following a better leader, you wouldn't have died. Like I can spin that other ways too. Point, yeah. And an another thought too is it, it's especially, you know, in times past and maybe on some level today still, like I say, you know, this is a tough thought, but as you get older, you more and more are depending on other people rather than providing for other people. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. like if you're 30 going off to war, you're probably providing for other people on, on some level. But if you're 80 laying in a bed, other people provide. And so I could see how people might not want to get to the point where they need to be spoon-fed. They'd rather be defending someone else, you know? So I could see that too. But man, let me tell you, please let me be 80 years old being spoon-fed on a bed. I, I don't want to die in battle. I don't mind getting old. I'll, I'll deal with it. Maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe when I'm older, I'm like, nah, I should have died in battle. We'll see, yeah, but I don't Sean, think so. Just real quick, that mm -hmm. all deaths on the battlefield, you know, that you're talking about loyalty and how they're valiant. So many people are just conscripted and drafted. Exactly. Like, yeah, it, they aren't necessarily no choosing loyalty. this. There's no yeah. choice. There's no... There's no yeah great courage i mean they didn't somehow run away but it's not like they had many choices where are they gonna go they're just gonna die then yeah yeah true yeah. so it is really a glorious death in other words or yeah now some people will think it's some of them it will be glorious and some people will think it's glorious even if it wasn't like eustace but also let me point out that a lot of people who are conscripted or maybe join naively even if they're not forced mm -hmm. into it Mm -hmm. They still are joining naively and then you go through some training, whether it's in those days or modern times, you go through the basic training. We're like, whoa, take your bayonet, shove, kill, kill. You know, <laughs> you might be naive or misled, but you often are still being brave, you know? Yeah. 
Uh, Dornish James says, Inchfield trying to cut off all other suitors makes me think in the main series of the way Jorah stands in the front of any man interested in Danny trying to prevent them from getting any influence. Yeah, that's a really good comp. Yeah, absolutely. Jorah definitely does that. Uh, he's also kind of similar in some ways that he's pretty ugly. <laughs> Just uh, hovering around her. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, circling, hover. Yeah, hovering is a good word. <laughs> But also formidable, dangerous, you know, not, not something to, to t- be taken lightly. And, and, high, and, and Highborn, too. Like, that's relevant as well. Uh, Inchfield is, is from a noble house, not a big prominent house, but still one that's important enough to have lasted into current times, certainly. Dornishame also says the, the Watts Wood thing, the fire in the West, is sort of like the perihelion that, that appeared or that seemed to appear in real life. It looked like three suns at Mortimer's Cross during the Wars of the Roses. That was a battle, or a place where a battle took place. And of course, the Wars of the Roses are a huge influence on Game of Thrones. The Tudors and the uh, Yorks are uh, the Lancasters. You know, Lancaster, Lannister, Tudor, Tyrell, sort but of, yeah, or Targaryen, so you, and uh, Stark, York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would imagine that, just like Eustace, people on the battlefield would have looked up to the sky and thought it was beautiful, stunning, interesting. Oh, that part. Okay, that, I that see. Part, I got gotcha. you. Yes. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah. Heck, uh, an incredible celestial event uh, is hard to argue that it's not beautiful. <laughs> and that it's not, yeah, you're going to be lying there in pain or dying, and that's what you're seeing. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of strange. Like, whoa, like, this is what I'm seeing? It would feel like, am I going to the afterlife now? couple of funny moments real quick, and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Um, I love this moment here. If you recall Roos Bolton teaching Theon slash Reek about how people talk. Remember, he's like, my lord is how lowborn people say it. My lord is for highborn people. And then we have an extension of that very uh, example happening right in front of us, where Dunk says, how strong do I appear, milady? It's followed up. Oh, by- strong enough to annoy Sir Lucas. He is my Castellan, though not by choice. Like Colmote, he is a legacy of my father. Did you come uh, Did you come to knighthood on some battlefield, Sir Duncan? Your speech suggests that you were not born of noble blood, if you will, give for my, <laughs> if you will forgive my saying so. So how do I strongly appear? Milady. Yeah, not my lady. Yeah. So your speech suggests you're not born. Yep. So called out. Interesting <laughs> consistency that George has there and a reminder that every word has some meaning, some thought behind it. Yeah, especially when you're, uh, when you're, uh, those, the highborn folk especially have very, like, they choose their words carefully. It's, it's bred into them to speak, speak certain ways and, and to interpret those differing from that or varying from that in itself is a clue. Just as a random aside, some people think that there's a chance that Lukumor the Lusty, Lukumor Strong, that um, he had a bunch of bastards in King's Landing. Well, he did. And that somehow Dunk is related to them. How strong do I appear, m'lady? Well, that, <laughs> mm, that's just as mm. a reference to that. Yeah, um, I don't think we're particular proponents of that, but you just will know. I don't think we would ever find out in world. And I, I don't think we should. But if you choose to believe that, I think you could, because I don't think it has really any great significance other than Lucamore having a bunch of bastards. I believe our mm-hmm. friend Joe Magician went uh, very thorough on this ex- exercise, we'll call it, of, of looking and examining and chewing over the different possibilities of who Dunk's 
connections, other ancestral connections might be, really, other than some of the ones we know well. Strong enough to annoy, annoy to annoy Sir Lucas. Yeah, strong enough. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, strong. I don't know. Lucamore, the lusty Lucamore, strong. Yeah, that was his name. In case that wasn't clear, y'all. So, mm-hmm. yep, good, good call. Absolutely worth pointing out. So let's let's. We've got a few last funny moments here, Sean. You've got this first one. I love this line. Yeah, it came up a couple times, but when 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 Egg's given advice on how to flirt with her, and uh, and he, and and Dunk's worried if I if I say the wrong thing, she might sew me up in a sack and throw me in a river. <laughs> and Egg says, "I doubt she has a sack that large, sir." <laughs> <laughs> and it comes up again later. She says. I'll sew a sack myself if I have to, you know. Yeah, one large she... enough, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when he sees Hellicent as part of the prank, he thinks to himself, mm-hmm. I don't think this one bathes in blood to keep her beauty. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and when, she's, when he says, your lordship built a dam across it, when she's, he's still talking to the wrong person, and she's like, I don't think I did. I was at church. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm quite sure I haven't. (laughs) No, no, not you. I mean... (laughs) I meant you ordered it. Like, yeah, no, I don't mean literally you built it. Like, what? (laughs) By the way, over and over again, I can't help, but I I feel like this book, in certain ways at least, for what I want, this book in particular, and these scenes here, it would be such great TV. Can you imagine how good... When when she slaps him, you know, fire and blood. You like just can. Can you imagine a passion? An actress could get a best acting nomination for this role. Like, like it doesn't fit the HBO model. They can't have like an action scene every episode. They can't have a sex scene every. They might be able to get away with every third episode at the tournaments and stuff. But (laughs) man, I so wish they could make this into a movie or a TV series. I I, I feel like it's going to happen eventually, but. The humor in these scenes that we're talking about is so everyone right. Everyone who's talked about it, you've had me the most interested with that pitch, Sean. Because personally, if there if there's a Dunkin' Egg, I want it to be animated. In mm. which case, there's no, no actress, me too. Me there's too. No actors getting nominated for you know. I suppose, that. yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, like I just because mainly I want it to be animated. I must say, just because I don't want Egg to be aging. I just oh. yeah, uh, or Dunk either, and right? Dunk can't age. He has to be really big. That's hard to cast. That's a good point. Yeah, uh, it's hard to cast someone in the first place, and then you can't let him age up too much. Yeah, yeah. The chronology is a problem. You're right. The logistics behind that. Another great line. Uh, he looked just like the stable boy he wasn't, and not at all like who he really was. <laughs> <laughs> I think true. that was earlier on too, by the way, and I think that's another example of humorous, of course, but also uh, of George. It's it's written such that if you haven't read the first book, he still like gives a little clues in the beginning. He doesn't come right out and say egg is a prince. Yeah. But then eventually he does. I, I still think it's 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 well constructed to stand as its own story, even if you didn't read the first one. Yeah. Uh, and my final uh, cited line for humor is maybe there are checky fish down beneath the checky water. <laughs> it's a checky fish. <laughs> Uh, hopefully, it's a fish that believes in family, duty, and honor. But, or, but I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of checky. You know, it's kind of checkered past. Mm-hmm. Here. Yeah. Uh, so we mentioned a couple of other episodes. As always, I don't. I hardly even need to mention that we mentioned the Blackfire series. But we also mentioned Dark Sister. We've got a whole episode on Dark Sister that contains stuff about Aemon the Dragon Knight, which is something we we talked about a good bit in his duel with Sir Morgul Hastwick and many other things. We also mentioned our Lies and Arbor Gold concept uh, that, or, or did I? Maybe I actually may have skipped over that. But when Septon Septon is serving Dunk Wine, 
it's an Arbor vintage. And this was kind of early on before it's established that it Arbor Gold specifically is the, the phrase that's so telling. And it wouldn't make sense for, for them to be drinking Arbor Gold. It's too expensive. It's like the fanciest wine on the, in the continent. So I think maybe George was leaning into that concept, but keeping it realistic by not having it be actual Arbor Gold. Because as we noted, there was a good bit of, of deception going on in that scene, most likely with, uh, what, Sir, with what Septon Septon was trying to do and, and loosen him up a bit. We also mentioned our Werewoods episodes. Uh, those, again, are part of the Religion and Magic series. There's two of them. The second one is Werewood Tour. The first one is just all about Werewoods and what they mean and different theories we have around those. Uh, we also mentioned our friends over at the Learn Hand podcast. We had them on as a guest for our uh, Mercy episode. That was a lot of fun. They are great. They are uh, it's Clint and Mary. They're friends of ours um, in real life as well as the podcast space. So I definitely recommend checking out their episode on this as well as their other episodes. Thanks to everyone who hung out with us today. We had another good episode, some good laughs, some good chats, and I think some good insight as well. We'll, like I said, be back next week with Jim McGee. And to wrap up The Sworn Sword, Sean will then be returning for The Mystery Night. We will, uh, yeah, so it won't be long before we get started with that. Thanks to uh, everyone who participates in our different social media places. That's over on Facebook, Slack, Discord, Twitter, and Flick. All those great spots. You can email us questions, interact with other fellow historians about these topics, as well as a variety of other topics. It'll also be a great place to be when new material drops from George and or HBO. Uh, the discussions will certainly be even more frequent uh, when there's new material, but they're still pretty robust even now. Oh, here's Speaking of pretty robust, look at this big girl. Oh, she's <laughs> big. What do you think, sweetie? Oh, she's being a little squirmy oh, right now. Top. She might not stay toe. long. How do you say it? Top or toe? Tough, okay. tough. Toffee. Okay. Yep. Yeah, she was very squirmy, but we saw she is getting really big and yep. light colored. <laughs> yep, yep. She's a little bit more speckled. Yeah. Jet's straight black. Toph is mostly black with some orange bits, but she's like more tan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to one 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 last point I wanted to make. Sure. Since I won't be here for the finale, Dunk does finally get the flirt right at the end. He finally does tell Rohan that her eyes, the, her dress brings out the beauty of her eyes. That's true. <laughs> or a lot of like, funny points came from the flirting uh, attempt. <laughs> You're right. And of course... But he gets it right in the end. And of course, Sean, if you have any thoughts you wanted to, that you didn't think of, that you wanted to throw in, you can certainly add them to the document and we'll take them up. We'll, we'll raise your banner during the episode. And... Uh, all right. Bring that up, whatever anything you have to say. Otherwise, we'll uh, just see you in a couple of weeks for the mystery night. That'll be a lot of fun. It might take us yeah. five episodes instead of four since it's substantially longer, but we'll see how it goes. We'll, you know, cross that bridge when we get to it. And uh, thanks also to Claradox, Michael Clarfeld for his excellent art. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Ruritus intro music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular History of Westeros music. Thanks to the Bengineer for our sound quality assistance editing. We're pretty close, he says, to the next uh, Winds of Winter chapter project episode drop. So be on the lookout for that in the next uh, few weeks. And uh, people keep asking me if I still need voices. You can safely assume 
I always need voice. Yes, that question is not necessary. Not necessary. Just submit <laughs> it or you can ask me if you have questions about it. But yes, I need it. Probably for the next two years, I'll yeah. need voices. Yeah, so it's polite to ask, but it's not necessary. Just go ahead. We definitely need your voices. You might be surprised. You may not think you have a good voice. Doesn't matter. Does not matter. You do need a good microphone, or at least a decent microphone. That's the only thing we say you must have. Decent recording. <laughs> the ability to make a decent recording. That's all we really say. The sound of your voice, don't worry about that. All right, folks. Thank you again, everybody. Check out our friends over on Here Be Dragons. Do we know what they're doing today? Clone Wars. Oh, cool. Clone Wars. Excellent. And that's very fun. Star Wars stuff. We always like to support people chat in Star Wars. We're fans as well. But so, nothing else. Yeah, nothing We only else. support people talking <laughs> Star Wars. That's right. That's right. If you're not talking Star Wars, we're not your friend. Even if you're talking Song of Ice and Fire, nah. <laughs> Just kidding, folks. We'll see you next week for more Valar Re-Reads. <laughs>